I always start by saying, like, episode 49 is underway. Yes. But it's not really underway. Right, because we're doing the tease. Yeah, this is the warm-up. We're in the bullpen. Sure. You're the catcher. I mean, you look like a catcher. Yeah, but I had to put my uniform on, so to me, (laughs) it's on. We're working. So we're throwing the ball back and forth. It doesn't officially begin, right? Yep. Until you hear the open of the show. Do people hear the open? You know, Steve Dion works really hard on the open of the show, the producer. Did okay. you know that? Did you know that there's even an open? Are you gonna tell? Yeah. Are you looking at me like that? You don't even know there's an open. To well, the show? there's an open after the tease. After the tease. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if Mitch people unfiltered. make it right. And he yeah. changed. When I started doing it, I was doing it myself. Yeah. I was doing everything. I was editing. I was, and so I wouldn't change the open. It was right. just take took too much time. Yeah. What am I going to do? Change the open? I did notice he's and, got updated clips in there. That's right. Yeah. And people were starting to complain, like like four episodes in. <laughs> hey. Come on, can you give us a new uh, open? We want new clips in the open. Yeah. So now I go out, many months ago, but I go out and we get Steve Dion to, to join the Unfiltered team, and he's changing the clips like every show, even the patron shows. Yeah, that's great. Have uh, not a soul. I don't hear. I don't hear. Hey, good job. Where are the Where are the people that were criticizing me for not changing the open? What happened? Yeah, but when you do things good, they just expect it. It's See, a high I bar. Don't, I don't think that that's very nice. Yeah, well, I don't think that's very fair. It may not be nice. I want to hear from people who like the opens. Well, does a cop pull you over and say, nice job going the speed limit? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, you're supposed to have a high bar sometimes. Are you saying that the that the listeners are the cops? <laughs> yes, They're the they conscience are. of the show? Oh, yeah, I've been radared right. a few times by them. Well, the <laughs> show doesn't act. The first pitch, the official first pitch of every episode is the open. Yes. I, I, there's part of me that wonders whether people just skip right through the open. No, and that don't. really upsets me. No, if course, that's the no. case, I, I was I wondering whether I should like say anybody listening to like during the open, anybody listening to this open, a million bucks. <laughs> right. Call me right now and see if anybody calls. <laughs> they will. Yeah, of course they listen. Okay. Yeah. They don't fast forward through the open. I don't think so. Okay. It's not that long. Okay. Yeah. This is going to be a weird episode because I've kind of been away all weekend and I went to a place that was kind of far away and in the middle of nowhere. Have you ever done that? This is like the third time I've been to this place or fourth time I've been to this place, but I've never anywhere else have done this where you get to this place and there's literally very little Wi-Fi, data or cell service. I mean, it's spotty very, not just spotty. Like they did this intentionally. They wanted oh, people okay. who came to this place. Yeah, to unplug to, for a weekend. Right, yeah. So I... I, I we are recording this like an hour and a half after I got off the plane. <laughs> I know, and I, got- I and I I have not seen yet. I've read, I've seen some clips of Edgar's, of Edgar's acceptance speech and some things that have happened. And I, yep. I, I didn't even see my favorite thing in the world is golf, and I didn't even see much of any of the British Open. Yeah, when you told Open me you didn't see much of it, I'm like, really? You who were thrilled because, who am I looking because, at? because you don't want to talk about. I was it. ready to do four hours on it. Do I you know? The whole thing. Do you even know who won? I know somebody from Ireland won. That's right. I did see that. What else did you? What else do you know? Um, about anything that happened at the the British Open, I think that's about it. Do you know that it was in Ireland? That I know. Do yes. you know that it, it returned to Ireland for the first time in a long time because of all the the infighting and the religious fighting that they've had in Ireland? The the the, the, the British Open, or as they call it, the Open Championship, hasn't been there in a long time. Did oh. you know that they went to literally? Rory McIlroy's kind of home course where he grew up, where he owns the course record. Did you know any of that? No, I did not. So it was like his big time to shine. His It was his weekend. Well, these things are put on the calendar like years and years in advance, right. the rotation. And once it came out that it was going to Royal Portrush, 
I think that's what they call it. I think so. It sounds right. Royal Portrush, uh, which is which is Rory McIlroy's. It, the, the countdown began. Yeah. Rory McIlroy's kind of hosting. He's going to get a chance to play at his home course where everybody loves him. Yep. And then it just blew up. It just blew up. In his face. Absolutely blew Missed up. Missed the cut. That's right. Oh, so you know that. Missed the Very cut. Very good, Hotch. Well, that, that part I, I know because he was trending on Twitter. Well, I want to talk about not him missing the cut, not about golf. I want to talk about Rory. I, I know people are probably tired of hearing me talk about Rory <laughs> because I've talked about Rory a lot. In on a good way. The old radio show. And on this podcast, uh, but again, I'm I, 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 it backs me up. What, what the way he handled himself yeah. in what had to have been a career disappointment. Now he didn't win the Masters that one year, and he's won all the other majors, and he's not, and he and he flubbed on the on the second nine on the final round of the Masters, and that was that's kind of like the Rory. The, the Rory failure that everybody talks about, but this is kind of different than winning a tournament. This feels different, yeah. You can for, sort of let a bunch of people down. All uh, the country, I mean, yeah. everybody was there to see yeah. him, and he wa- and he's one of the best players in the world, and he didn't even play well enough to play on the weekend and still put himself in front of a microphone and nearly was crying mm-hmm. over over this. So what I guess I was going to say is I, I'm not as I'm not as sharp on my sports knowledge. I feel a little like you on a regular day. <laughs> okay. I'm not, I'm not as That's I'm nice. not as sharp. No. I'm not I'm not as sharp on my sport. You're sharper. You probably saw the Edgar Martinez. Saw the whole thing. Speech. You probably saw Mo uh, Mariano. Mariano Rivera. I did. I have some thoughts. Yes. Oh, you do. Yeah. See, I haven't seen them yet. And as we get into now episode 49, it was my idea, I sent around, around a text, and it, it sounds like you and Steve agree, it was my idea just to put all of Edgar's 12 minutes or whatever it was, 11 minutes and 55 seconds, onto the podcast. Makes sense. Yeah. Because there's got to be somebody out, if there's just one person who would like to hear Edgar Martinez's speech in its entirety that hasn't heard it yet, and he wants to listen to it or she wants to listen to it on the way to work or while working out or on a treadmill or on a Stairmaster. Do people do still do Stairmaster? I'm sure they do, yeah. I'm going to put, we're going to put, and if and anybody who doesn't want to hear it, who already heard it, can just, you know, hit the button. Fast forward. So why not just toss it on at yeah. the end of the first segment and allow people to hear? We're doing everybody a favor. Who that's wants it. to sit and watch that's that it. nonsense? Yeah, yeah. yeah you just yeah, listen to it in your car. Yeah. And what else is going to be on episode 49? Well, it's going to be an interesting show. Uh, we're going to deal with a heavy subject. There's going to be a, a, a war, fair warning. I'm wandering again. I always say I, I like to wander away from sports. Yeah. But this isn't entirely away from sports, but it is a difficult segment. And if you only listen to Mitch on Filter because you want to laugh or you want to smile or you want to be entertained in a lighthearted way, then this is not going to be a segment for you. But if you want to know what I'm interested in and you want to hear something that's of serious and, and potentially very dark nature then this segment's going to be. We have talked about it. I don't know that you and I have talked. I know that Jason, maybe Jason Hamilton and I, I certainly have had reporters and writers on to talk about the story of the story of Lauren McCluskey. Do you know the name Lauren McCluskey? I do. I'm familiar with okay. it. Okay. Yeah. So Lauren McCluskey, for our listeners who don't know, uh, 21 or 22 years old, Utah track star, University of Utah track star from Pullman, Washington, of oh, all places. Wow. Her parents are both on the staff 
at Washington State, are both, I think, teachers at God. Washington State University. She goes to Utah. She's a track star. She's got her I mean, bright and, and articulate and just got everything going for her. She gets involved with a guy who isn't honest with her about who he is, what his name is, and it turns out he's a felon. He just got out of jail. He's been in jail for rape, the whole thing. And she starts getting worried. She cuts it off. He starts stalking her. She she calls the police over and over. Her friends call the police like, this is scary, this is scary. And the University of Utah police essentially dismiss it. Like, this is, this is just a boyfriend-girlfriend spat, and we're not getting involved in this. The mother and father from Pullman called, worried, and then the worst thing in the world happened after they just kind of ignored her request for help. Yeah. He killed her in October. Just just awful. I remember reading that story and making it about halfway through. I'm a, I have a daughter, and I was just thinking, as a parent, you get them to 18, you get right. them into college. It's right. probably free because she's right. on the track team. You've right. done your job. I can't imagine what her parents went uh, have been going through. She was right. on, just to, I, I don't I, I don't want to be, I don't want this to be titillating. And I don't want the, inter- by the way, the interview that I'm going to do on this show is with her parents. I wrote a long letter to her father who I don't know if he's familiar with me or he has some sort of vague familiarity with who I was when I was, I don't know, maybe doesn't know me at all, but I wrote a long letter inviting him and his wife, the parents of, of Lauren McCluskey to join me on the podcast, to talk about their daughter and talk about what this terrible, terrible event is now springboarding. Okay. They are suing the University of Utah Police for I think fifty-eight or fifty-six million dollars. Yeah, they think, and a lot of people agree, that the University of Utah Police could have pre- prevented their daughter's death. They're going to tell a little bit about the story. They're looking for damages. They're going to take any damages that they win in a trial or they settle for, and they're going to put it into the Lauren McCluskey Foundation to help improve safety for. College kids, and in particular, campus females. It's great. I mean, they're I, not profiting at all. But yeah, I, I remember yeah. reading that that they're not going to take one penny. Let's, right. Let's say they win fifty-six million in court. Right. They're not taking any of it. Not taking any. That's of it. amazing. So I just wrote a note on how my heart bleeds, yeah. and if there's if there's any way we could have them on to talk about their daughter and talk about what they're going to do and talk about any anything we can do. I, look, I'm a father of a kid who's getting ready to go to college right. next year, going to college. It's a male, but, uh, you know, I you just, know. I'm just, yeah. you know, is there anything that our listeners can do? Is there any way that the, the dialogue, the conversation, I wanted to have the conversation. And so uh, Jill and Matthew McCluskey are going to be on episode 49. I can't wait to hear it. Honestly, I'm looking forward to listening to it. I hope people it. will listen yeah. to it because I'm proud of it. I did it last week. Mm-hmm. I think that they're terrific I think they've got their minds in the right place. They're obviously mourning. It's still sure. only, what, eight or ten months? But they've got their hearts in the right place, and I think it's a very important segment, and I would hope that those that like Mitch Unfiltered will take a listen to this, and let me hear what you think. Turning a huge negative into a positive, hopefully. hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. Other, other guests on episode 49, Corey Brock, who is the Mariners writer for The Athletic. He has been... He has been writing pieces on why people that are Mariners fans should pay attention to the second half of the season. 
And I need that because I'm having trouble <laughs> paying half, pay, paying attention to the Mariners in the first or second half of the season. Yeah, it's funny. The other night I was at the store and I'm on a text thread with like 10 or 11 friends from high right. school and someone said something about Leak throwing a no-hitter. Oh, perfect game. Or Yeah. I, I, I heard that through the grapevine. So and- I go home. I see someone get a hit off him. And I'm changing right <laughs> to something else. I'm like, I just can't do it. It's hard to watch. Yeah, well, it's, it's hard. It's and, hard. Yeah, and I have more thoughts about that when we get into Edgar okay. too. Uh, and then the third guest, so Corey Brock will be with us. The third guest on episode 49 is a, is a guy by the name of Kurt Bodenhausen. You wouldn't know his name. He's a Forbes senior editor, and he writes about the business of sports. He tweets about the business of sports, and okay. I kind of watch from time to time. And I, I have just been, in my mind, having a hard time getting my arms around how much money is being spent in the NBA in the last three weeks. Yeah. And I really don't get it because every time I turn around, NFL is where it's at. NFL is where it's at. Something's going right in the NBA. <laughs> right. These owners are making a lot. Of, the, I, I don't know if it's television content. I don't know if it's merchandise. Yeah. Where are These guys are paying like mediocre players. Yep. 14, 15, 16 million dollars a year for four or five years, guaranteed all of it's guaranteed. <laughs> it's all guaranteed I'm like, yeah. what, what's going on? So I've I've called upon Kurt Bodenhausen to help me understand why the NBA is so rich right now. And what what is it is it the the, the commissioner? Is it Adam Silver? What is actually happening to allow these teams to pay hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and what was it, billions of dollars were spent at, during free agency, I think. Yeah, it's crazy. I know. I, the other day, I was just looking up a rant. I was like, Clay Thompson probably makes seven or eight a year. No, he makes fifteen point five. I, I mean, mean, I know he's good, but that's... oh, and he's going to sign a. He's getting ready to sign. He yeah. signed a new. I think he just did a, a max contract. Right, but it's like they're I, paying guys that can't even play <laughs> that are hurt. Right. I mean, you told us about the one guy that never hit a three. It was a Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons <laughs> never. He's, hit never three. he's over seventeen from three. My daughter hit one this weekend in one of her games. Really, that's her first one more than Ben Simmons. <laughs> her first one ever. She hit a three. Right. Where's that's our right. money? Uh, <laughs> so Kurt Bodenhausen from. From Forbes magazine, the business of the NBA uh, will be with us, okay? And thanks to our partners who have made episode 49 and the rest possible. Evergreen Golf Call, the premier wealth manager in the Northwest, headquartered here in Bellevue. The Financial Times says one of the top financial advisors of 2018 with offices all over the West Coast, including Portland, San Francisco, and the Napa Valley. Homegrown in the Northwest, Zeke's Pizza, now with 17 large locations. Bothell down to Tacoma, a night out to watch sports like I'm going to do with the Seahawks and Husties games this fall or an evening in. Zeke'sPizza.com delivers right to your door. You can count on this Northwest staple and a supporter of Mitch Unfiltered. Daniels Broiler. By my side for the last 15 or 20 years, the Schwartz family, they've been terrific. Leshy, South Lake Union, Bellevue Place, and the newest jewel, downtown Seattle in the Hyatt Regency. There's nothing like special events at Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses. And the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage with 30-year fixed-rate mortgages down in the threes. You are making a crazy mistake if you don't just call them and ask, how much money you can save on a refinance, 425-250-3150. Just takes five or ten minutes with Jordan Flowers, or a member of his Kirkland Guild Mortgage team. Episode 49, 
begins now. Unfiltered. If he has 14 sacks, he's asking for like the most money. He's going to ask for a lot more. You ain't getting them at 60. It, it's, 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 it just puts you a sports fan into one of those positions that I hate that we all get into every now and again. We're going to be rooting for the guy. And every time we're sitting on a Sunday watching the Seahawks and he comes through and makes a big play, we're going to be like, yeah. Oh, no. We're going to, in our mind, the back of our mind, like, oh, there. Every time he makes a play, it becomes less of a chance that he's going to be back. So are we rooting for him to make a play or to not make a play? I'm confused, and this is why I should go to the ballet instead of watching football on Sundays. Unfiltered. No, no, they have a half a national championship, okay? Anybody from Florida knows that Miami would have won that game, and so you're going to throw at me like every, like Hugh Millen always did. Well, what happened when Washington went down to Miami? Was it the next year, two years later? Napoleon Kaufman ran wild in the Orange Bowl and busted the Miami Hurricane, you know, unbeaten streak at home or whatever it is. Different year, different game. The Washington Huskies were a nice little story. Mitch is unfiltered. Okay, episode 49 is now officially underway. You you listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. That's right. The one that Mitch came on my phone. Yep. That's right. Easy. You can listen pretty much anywhere, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, where yeah. and you are a patron. I am a patron, yes. You are a huge supporter of myself. That's- <laughs> I love myself. But you can also listen on the website, too, if you go to the, like, if you're at yeah. work, because yes. I always have headphones on into my computer, just listen right. on the website, if you want to. Because, That's another way. Because most people's, oh, I see, because. Yeah. Instead of your phone. Instead or, of your phone, you yeah. can listen, yeah. MitchUnfiltered.com. Right you can even buy Mitch Unfiltered merchandise. Lots of merchandise yes, out there. Yes, you can. Lots of people are buying sweatshirts and t-shirts and. I don't know what we have anymore. I have a coffee cup. I know that. I know you do. We have a tumbler. Tumbler, It's called a tumbler. Is that what it's It's, called? It's called a tumbler. It's very nice. Uh, Yes. So you go to MitchUnfiltered.com. We want you to rate us on Apple Podcasts. We want you to listen. We want you to become a patron because we do a full second show. And when we get to football season, I'm just I'm just warning you. <laughs> football season's around the corner. Is this People, a warning or a threat? Well, I can't. I'm trying no, to, I'm just, I'm just no it's not. It's a warning. <laughs> People are thinking, okay, football season will come and he'll start doing two or three free shows. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. Okay. The second we're gonna have the Peter Kings of the world on and the Jason Lock and Foras and yep. Brady Hendersons, and we're gonna we're gonna have a lot of NFL Rick Neuheisel, and they're gonna be on not only the Monday shows, they're gonna be on the Thursday shows. We're gonna do a great second show during the football season that could be ninety minutes or two hours. And you gotta be a patron. You gotta be a patron to get the second show. That's I just the way it works. Highly suggest it. I, I do too. Do it up. I do too. Uh before we start on forty nine. Do you want the 49s? It's not a great crop. I was thinking on the way down, that's got to be the worst sports number ever, no, right? No, it's not the worst number It's ever. up there. 49. I could not come up. You, you tell me $5 million would come up with one player who even wore it. I'd have nothing. 49? Oh, there's people who know some 49s. I remember there were, well, there's people out there. Clearly, they're not me. <laughs> but there was a guy that played for the Broncos. I used to watch him against the Seahawks. Oh, yeah. He was a pretty good safety. I think oh, he yeah. was 49. Dennis Smith? Smith. Did was he, he 49? I, yeah, I think so. Okay. And I think he collided. Wasn't there something with Mike Steve Harden. Largent? Were, were, yeah, that was Mike Harden. Oh, that Mike Harden. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. Not 49. I, uh, I was there, by should the way. I, should I edit that out or should I keep that in? <laughs> All right, here are your local Yokos for 49. Okay. Real quickly, we'll get through this fast because I know a lot of people don't like this. And then we'll name it at the end. Here are the, here are the, here are the options. Local guys. Uh, how about Joe Table? Oh, Jose Mesa. Jose Mesa wore 49. Okay. Wade LeBlanc. Currently wears 49. Best Seahawk in the history of the organization to wear 49. Your boy Clint Gresham 
the uh, long snapper. Long snapper. Right. War, War 49. Oh my, that's the best. And, and I know that you're going to love this because you want to talk about this team. The 91 Washington team also represented a guy named, and I never heard Tyrone his name. Tyrone Rogers? Steve yeah. Springstead. Uh, yeah, he was like a linebacker, he I was think. Very good. Yeah, he, was yeah. a li- he was a reserve on the 91 team, yeah, he but then he start. started the next year. That's right. Yeah. Steve Springstead. Oh, he's happy to Here's have his my name pull on there. for you. <laughs> uh, war number 49. And then the national ones, and I think it's pretty obvious where I'm going to go with it. It may, it may not be the right decision. There were some pretty good 49s. There was an NHL player named Brian Savage. I don't know who that is. Uh, there was a guy named Bobby Mitchell in the NFL circles that wore 49. And then there were two baseball pitchers oh. that wore 49. One right in my wheelhouse in my youth. Okay. The Gator, Louisiana Lightning, Ron Guidry of the New York Yankees. Heard of him. Were 49, played like 15 seasons in, in Major League Baseball. And then Hoyt Wilhelm also wore number 40. So there's your there's your crop. Ooh, that's a who's who. Are you ready for episode Joe Table? <laughs> That would be great. I forgot he was a Mariner, by the way. Yeah, he was a Mariner. He came from Cleveland. Uh, yeah, and I don't think he had. I think he had a bad run too off the field. One of these days, I'm going to put together I think there a, were some some bad things oh, that, that happened right? in his world. Yeah, I'm going to put together a list of the greatest Seattle athletes who came at the end of their career. Like Jerry Rice would be on that list. Franco Harris. Franco Harris. Patrick uh, Ewing. Uh, How about Patrick uh, Ewing as a Sonic? God. Someone's <laughs> got to put together the list. Seattle uh, teams were notorious for that for a while. Weren't well, they? I think that. Yeah, I guess just because we lived here, we remember the Seattle ones, but I think this happens. Every city would say that. O.J. Simpson went and played for the San Francisco 49ers. Right. It didn't uh, Unitas, I think, too? I, I think Joe Namath. Or was Namath, maybe? Did Namath go to the – I can't remember. One of them. Was, they went so – all yeah. these guys. Okay. And that's what – by the way, it's a great segue. That's what makes the fact that Edgar Martinez is in the hall – that's what makes him special, right? Yep. Edgar Martinez could have late. I mean, how easy would it have been had Edgar Martinez finished up his career with like a random year with the St. Louis Cardinals? Yeah, he could have totally. So easy, yeah. but he. I'm but sure he the never Yankees did. wanted him at some point too, right? Well, sure everybody. Yankees, well, yeah. during his prime, everybody. Well, I, yeah. I, re- I remember when my my dad was a huge Yankees fan. Was always a huge Yankees fan, and when they traded the big trade uh, for Tino Martinez. To the Yankees. Oh, I remember that. In the Russ Davis trade. Remember Russ Davis? Oh, yeah. Uh, my father called and was all pissed off because they got the wrong Martinez. <laughs> yeah, right. My Yankees got the wrong Martinez because he only knew Edgar Martinez. He didn't know. Now, Tino would go he to was, New York and have some really good right. years. Won a couple of But my dad didn't know anything about yeah. Tino. All, all my dad wanted was Edgar Martinez. Why didn't we get Edgar Martinez? <laughs> yeah. He called, he, he called here when I was living in Seattle. So Edgar's in. Did you see the speech? No one – now here's – there's good news and bad news with the speech. I have not heard it. We're going to play it in its entirety. I think it's about 12 minutes at the end of this first segment for anybody who's not heard it and wants to, you know, get on a treadmill for 11 and a half minutes. What can you do in 11 and a half minutes? Have a little breakfast. Yeah. Drive to work. Throw it on your radio, whatever. You'll have spend, access. Spend time to, with your yeah. kid, maybe. That's, I, I have right. not seen it yet because I'm just getting off the plane. But Tino, by the way, in attendance today. Really? That's right. Sitting with the Yankees. Really? Sitting with Jeter and uh, Jorge Posada. Well, why didn't he also sit with the Mariners? Great question. Go sit with your buddy Bone. I'm sure he was there Tino somewhere. Tino and Edgar Martinez must have been really close, you would think. Yeah, I get. Well, yeah, but, yeah, but also Rivera was there. Wasn't Bernie Williams also well, Bernie, what do you mean? Wasn't he inducted today, too? No, Bernie no. Williams is not inducted. Well, he played guitar home. for some reason on stage. <laughs> like, I don't know. What is that? No, Bernie Williams is not oh, inducted. So he must have been there for Rivera. Yeah, of course. For a lot of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what did you think? So what I was going to say, there's good news oh. and bad news. 
look, look, I mean, let's be honest here. No one, the the bar was really low for Edgar in terms of speeches. Oh, right. I love Edgar as much as anyone. He is not a dynamic fella behind the microphone. I remember when Walter Jones <laughs> just recently went into the NFL Hall of Fame, the Football Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. And I said that I had the same feeling for like years, knowing that Walter, just a matter of time before Walter has to get up there and do a speech. And then Walter completely um, outproduced my expectations by being up there. So I'm asking you before I see it, I have a zip. The bar was like is like the phone book on the floor for me to jump over for Edgar Martinez. I have no expectations that he that he was going to be you know yeah. anything What's- more than just. Edgar. What's a little thicker than a phone book? <laughs> like a couple dictionaries yeah. on top of each other. <laughs> Maybe the Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, it's I hard to make fun of him because he's, uh, you know, it's not his first language. No and it was, he's just, he is who, it's exactly what you think it'll be. He just read it. Not a lot of emotion. He just is who he is. He so, says, yeah, he says he practiced it 15, 50 times. No. Incl- yes. Fi- he did the speech 50 times and he did it 12 times this morning. Before he had to go oh, up there. That's what he said. Poor guy. He, he now, said he had it like almost memorized. Did, did you not feel that? He had sunglasses on, but it looked like he was looking down reading the whole time. It okay. was, he's just not a dynamic guy. Okay. He, you know, he, not everyone can sit in front of mics and do amazing podcasts. That's not for everybody, right? I mean, okay, stop. it takes a special breed to do that. Yeah, well, but find you, one. <laughs> Seattle fans, thank you for always being there for me. Since 1987, you gave me your unconditional support. It was even more prevalent in these last 10 years. The support you gave me over social media really helped me get here today. Thank you, Mariners fans. You are the best fans I could ever hope for. I'm so glad that I stayed with you till the end of my career. I love you, Seattle fans. Thank you. That's pretty nice. It was very sweet and very heartfelt, and he was very sweet to his kids and his daughter, his 17-year-old daughter. You could see like a tear coming down her cheek. Like yeah. it really hit her. Yeah. And, and one of his daughters, it was funny. He said, you were born after I re- retired. You don't even know what this is all. She's like kind of shaking her head like, I don't even know why we're here. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. she never saw him play. Right. But it, it was very heartfelt felt and it was very sweet and he broke did he did he get a little teary-eyed when he talked about his family and his wife and so forth no no if he did stoic he, yeah if he did i didn't down see the it. middle i didn't see any tears but all right i will say mariner fans showed up and it really? kind of it kind of made me like they were like to the point where harold reynolds and the guys on the at the desk were laughing like look at these fans they're nuts just well, that's that, nice it was awesome and it kind of made me a bit sad and that people in seattle are dying to root for some baseball aren't they They'll do anything to root for baseball. They have to go to Cooperstown to cheer for something that already happened. It's the first cheer we've had all year. What do you mean the first It's cheer? the first good thing that's happened for a Mariners <laughs> right. fan all season. Right, that was the highlight. We had to, we had to wait till like after the All-Star break yeah. to go watch Edgar Martinez right. get into the Hall of Fame. The fans were going crazy. Edgar shirts everywhere, big banners and posters. Uh, baseball fans are dying to root for something, and yeah. it was kind of sad in a way that it takes this. I don't know how to change that. I don't know either. And it doesn't look like it's changing anytime soon. Well, you keep putting these 19-year-old kids on that are phenoms, and I'm, I have some hope. I have a little hope for the future. <sighs> yeah. They're out there, I think. And I, I saw your boy Big Maple getting ripped in New York City. Really? Oh, yeah. He pitched three and a half today. Well. Yeah. But I, I went back and looked at who we got for him, and there's some young guys. So, may, you know, maybe, maybe something will happen. I'm optimistic. Mo Rivera said in his speech that he cried himself to sleep because he didn't know English when he got off the plane. Yeah. And he's joining a new new job with all these guys, and he couldn't communicate with his teammates. He couldn't communicate with his coaches. He couldn't communicate. And I know that this is not 
unique to him. I mean, now nowadays you've got Japanese ball players, you've got international ball players coming to the United States all the time, not being able to communicate. But it just when I read it, I haven't seen it yet. But when I just read how he said he cried himself to sleep, I wondered to myself, what? Think about how. I can't even imagine how old was he? Like twenty. I mean, the young guy. Can you imagine having yeah. to go across the world yeah, you live for in a job, now. not know anybody, and yeah. not be able to say anything to anybody, not be able to c- communicate with anybody? Just glomming onto someone who speaks your language so you can have some conversation. And he says that he actually learned how to speak English from his teammates. Mm-hmm. And he told his teammates, you can laugh at me all you want. Yeah. Something like that. Yep, you can, you can exactly laugh right. at me all yep. you if want. If I say something wrong, you can laugh. laugh. It's fine. But just do me a favor and teach me. Tell me what I did wrong. Tell me the correct yeah. way. It's it's a it's a it, really it's a really nice story. And then there's the story of Roy Halliday, who's that that I mean, was tough to watch. The heart the mo- really? Yeah, it was tough to watch. His wife, right? Yes. His wife got up there and spoke and it, it would be like my wife who's it's like her nightmare to do public speaking. And so who knows this woman didn't probably want to ever go in front of a crowd and speak in her life. Yeah. But she went up there and she toughed it out, even though there was a lot of... T- she said she couldn't even watch the video montage of it. It was too hard still. You know, you forget it was only two years ago yeah. that he passed. But that, that was that was really rough. That was that was heartfelt. And he, he went in with no team. I don't know if you saw that or not. No. So she made the call for him because the first part of his career in Toronto was very important. And then obviously the Phillies, he had a ton of success. He, she just thought he would never choose one. So he's going in... To Cooperstown with no team. Are there other examples of that? I don't of know. Players in there with no team, so no hat. Yeah, or the, a hat with no. It's logo. like an MLB hat or something. Really? Yeah. Which I thought was kind of cool. God, just a, just a shame. And I don't know if you've read up on the story lately. There's still some. There's still some, some questions, some intrigue oh, about what happened in that plane. Uh, and you know, there was uh, toxicology reports that say. There were drugs in his system. There was. There's even some people that think he committed suicide. Oh, he was having real trouble after baseball. He certainly had a drug problem. I think that he had uh, that he had been through rehab and so forth. And they found a lot of drugs in his system, different types of drugs in his system. And he's up there. He's up there flying a plane. Right. Just, it just, you know, you just wonder how hard it was, whatever his darkness was, how hard it was, and just awful that he wasn't there. A young, young, I don't know, would he be 45? I don't even know that he'd be 45 years old. He'd be 42. 42 years old. He died at 40 in 2017, if I remember correctly. Uh, He'd be 42, and he's got kids, and, you know, it's rough. All right, I got three interviews, one of which is, I think, very important. The other two are interesting, but one is very, very important, the the parents of Lauren McCluskey, we talked about her in the first segment, the tease segment. Lauren McCluskey was a 21 or 22-year-old 20 track star at the University of Utah, and a former boyfriend murdered her in October. Her parents are going to be in um, interview segment number one. But what we're going to do first, before we get to interview segments number one, two, and three, then you and I will come back. We'll talk about the British Open We'll talk about Rory. We'll talk about Francisco. There's a there's a number a guy getting knocked out of the ring who looked like you a little bit. Yeah, maybe it was. You never know. Um, I'm going to ask you. I, I I hear that the Seattle NHL team has their first GM, and I just happened to be uh, over the weekend and, and on a little golfing trip with a guy who spent 18 years in the uh-huh. NHL is still in the NHL in an organization knows Ron Francis and had some thoughts about because I don't know anything about hockey. Sure. So I asked him. Hey, tell me about Ron Francis. And he gave me a thought or two, and I want to share it in our last segment with the people that listen to this podcast that might be interested in the new, the very first GM of the Seattle NHL team. But what I want to do first 
is give people a chance to hear Edgar. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Hall of Fame class of 2019, Edgar Martinez. Thank you to the writers for this incredible honor. I also want to thank James Ford Clark, Jeff Iderson, and the Hall of Fame staff. You have been incredible to me and my family throughout this wonderful journey. Thank you. Please allow me to say a few words in Spanish to my people from Puerto Rico. Mi gente de Dorado y mi barrio de Maguayo Un abrazo. Mi historia es sencilla, criado en barrio, rodeado de gente humilde, con buenas intenciones. Yo me beneficié de la calidad de seres humanos que, que vive en el barrio de Maguayo, Dorado, Puerto Rico. Los quiero mucho y nos vemos pronto. Thank you for that moment. I want to congratulate the men inducted into the Hall of Fame with me. It is an honor to be a part of this class. Mariano, I changed all my hits for my last at bat of the 2001 playoff. With the game on the line, you got me out with a sinker. I didn't even know you had a sinker. Harold <laughs> <laughs> Baines, I love watching you hit. You were one of the best clutch hitters I ever saw. Liz Smith, I didn't get the chance to face you much, and I'm so glad. <laughs> Mike Musina, you were one of the toughest pitchers to figure out. And the Holiday family, my respect, congratulations to you. We're thinking about Roy. I am honored and, and humbled to be standing in here in front of you. I admire the men behind me. I even imitated, imitated some of them during my career. I used George Brett's, Kirby Pockets, and others' body stands when mine wasn't working. Tony Perez, you were one of my heroes back when you played for the Kangra Heroes during the Winter League. My grandfather and I would listen to the games on the radio and my grandfather used to say, se acabó el juego, Tani viene ahora, which means, game over, Tani is coming to hit. You were a big part of my youth in Puerto Rico. Mis hermanos Roberto Lomar, Ivan Rodriguez, y Orlando Cepeda. As a Puerto Rican, I am honored to have my plaque in the hall with yours. It is hard to believe that a dream that started when I was about 10 years old will take me on an amazing journey. Since the first time I saw Roberto Clemente on TV and some highlights in the World Series, I was hooked on the game of baseball. All I wanted to do was play the game 
And like most kids in Puerto Rico, I wanted to be like Roberto Clemente. What a great example Roberto Clemente was to all of us in Puerto Rico. And what an honor to have my plaque in the hall alongside with his. Every man on this stage has had the, the people that held them along the way. It was the same with me. These people were a big reason why I'm here today. From my grandparents who raised me and instilled in me values like hard work, respect, and discipline, to my whole family, my teammates, coaches, my people from Aguayo, where I grew up, thank you for providing a sanctuary that protected me. In Maguayo, my time was consumed with baseball, the game I love. I am so fortunate to be raised in Maguayo, Dorado, Puerto Rico. Gracias, mi gente. Marty Martinez, I was so lucky to cross paths with Marty. I wish Marty Martinez was here. He passed away a few years ago. Marty was a scout that signed me. He saw something in me that others didn't see. I didn't have the classic home run power, but it was the whole field. I didn't have a lot of range on the field, but I would make the plays. I didn't have a cannon for an arm, but I was very accurate with my throws. Marty saw consistency and potential. Thank you, Mary, Marty. Carmelo Martinez, my cousin. Carmelo is like a brother. He signed before me and had a big influence in my life. When Marty Martinez offered me the contract, I didn't want to sign. I thought I was going to school. I was going to school, also playing on the weekends. Life was go uh, good for me. New car, nice clothes. Why I want to risk what I had for $4,000? Well, Carmelo convinced me. He told me, you can make it. Give it a shot. We argued and he won. Carmelo, thank you. You are a big reason why I am this stage. <laughs> to my managers, coaches, thank you all. Jeff Scott, Greg Malbert, RJ Harrison, and Bill Plummer. Thank you for teaching me the fundamentals of the game during, the, during my minor league uh, years. Lupinera. You meant so much, so much to me and to my career. From the first time I talked to you, I knew that a dramatic change will come to the Mariners organization. I love talking hitting with you. You are a very special man, and I, ho I hope you get the call soon. You deserve it. <laughs> to all my teammates, you make me a better player. Baseball is a team sport, and without your talent, passion, and brotherhood, I would not be here. I won't be able to mention all, all of you, but you know who you are. I love you, and I consider you brother for life. I wanted to make a few special mentions. Harold Reynolds, Alvin Davis, Dave Ali. Thank you for teaching me the ways in the big leagues the first few years. I love you guys. Junior, the kid, 
Thank you for being a great teammate. It was such a treat to look at your beautiful swing from the on-deck circle. And thank you for your words about me during your induction speech. Jay Buner, bat to the bone. Thank you for being like a brother to me and for being an outspoken leader in a clubhouse. I love you. Randy, big unit. I don't know if you remember, but when you went to play for Arizona, a reporter quoted me in the paper. I say something about you that you didn't like. You came to me and asked, what was that in the paper? And I say, what paper? And then you told me, don't worry, it will hurt, but only for a minute. <laughs> Watch him, he might throw at me right now. <laughs> I love that you had the intensity and drive. He gave our team an edge. To the Mariners organization, the people in the, of the organization, they are all wonderful. Rick Griffin, Don Nover, the trainer to get me back on the field after my injuries. Thank you. And thank you to the PR team for an amazing job with my Hall of Fame campaign. I don't think I will be here without your work. Thank you to the management for believing in me. Howard Lincoln, Chuck Armstrong, Lipe Lacuras, Kevin Mathers, John Staten, and John Ellis. Thank you. To my mom and my sister, Sonia, I'm so glad that I can share this great moment with you. I love you. My brother Elliot, thank you for all those pebbles you pitched to me when we were kids. You helped develop my hand-eye coordination. I love you. <laughs> to my son, Alex, I'm looking forward to our classes together. Spending time with you and taking courses with you is so much fun. You are very smart and you have a great soul. I love you very much. <laughs> to my girl, Tessa, I can't believe you're 17 years old and going to college soon. Sometimes I look at the pictures of our trips and when I see yours, it makes me smile every time. You are so kind, so smart and beautiful. You have a natural grace. I love you. My girl, Jacqueline, JJ, I know you never saw me play. You were, you were born after I retired and probably wonder what is the, the, the big deal. <laughs> you are so much fun. Your personality fills our house. You make us laugh every day. I am so impressed how you know, word by word, most of the Hamilton songs. I love you very much. <laughs> to my wife, hi. I am so thankful for you and for all the great things you, you have accomplished in the last 10 years. You got your master's degree and became a successful professional. You are such a great example to our kids. I love you for who you are and for your drive. I love you. <laughs> Mariners fans, I am so fortunate to have two homes, Puerto Rico and Seattle. 
Seattle fans, thank you for always being there for me. Since 1987, you gave me your unconditional support, and it was even more prevalent in the last 10 years. The support you gave me over the social media really helped me to get here today. Thank you, Mariner fans. You are the best fans I could ever hope for. I am so glad that I stayed with you till the end of my career. I love you, Seattle fans. Thank you. This is a day I never could have, have ever imagined happening when I was growing up in Puerto Rico or when I was in minor leagues wondering when my chance will come. And honestly, there were times over the last 10 years I wasn't sure what was going to happen. So thank you once again to everyone along the way who made this dream come true. I am so grateful and proud. Thank you. You killed it, Edgar. It was great. It. That was, was phenomenal. It was great. There he is, Seattle's own Edgar Martinez, who on his final, his final year on the ballot finally makes it into the Hall of Fame, making us all thrilled here in the Pacific Northwest. All right, three interviews. First one's a difficult one, but an important subject with the parents of Lauren McCluskey, who was murdered in October at the University of Utah. Hot shot, it's over. A champion's been crowned, and the Pebble Beach trip, thanks to Evergreen Golf Call, is happening in one week. A listener and his guest are joining me at Pebble Beach, playing Spyglass, playing Pebble, staying at the Lodge, all because of Tyler Hay and his Evergreen Golf Call team's enormous support of Mitch Unfiltered. It's called the Majors, the Unfiltered Majors, presented by Evergreen Golf Call. How lucky am I? to have a partner like Evergreen Golf Call, the premier wealth manager in the Northwest, managing over $2 billion with a B, dollars in assets, the 2018 fastest-growing wealth manager. In 2018, by the way, the Financial Times named them one of the top advisors in America. Yeah, they're headquartered in Bellevue, but they've got offices all over the West Coast, Portland, San Francisco, the Napa Valley. Remember, unlike stockbrokers, Evergreen is a fee-only advisor. There are no hidden fees or commissions. Check them out. Evergreengovcall.com. That's evergreen, G-A-V-E-K-A-L.com. Sign up for their newsletter. Over 10,000 have already done so. And listen to their new podcast, of which I'm going to be on in a couple of weeks. You're going to hear me on the Evergreen Exchange. Evergreen Golf Call, the premier wealth manager of the Northwest. Unfiltered. Our next segment is just plain awful, tragic on every level. We'll make you sad, we'll make you angry, we'll confuse you. Many of you know by now, because we've talked about it on this show, the story of Lauren McCluskey, a young, smart, talented track star at the University of Utah from Pullman, Washington, so tragically taken from this world, a murder victim back in October at the hands of a former short-term boyfriend, a 37-year-old felon on parole after 10 years in prison, later taking his own life. Uh, joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline, the parents of Lauren, Jill and Matt McCluskey. Guys, first of all, thank you for your willingness to chat. 
and allow me to begin by just sharing my deepest sympathy and prayers to you, your family, and all of Lauren's friends and loved ones. Thank Thank you. you. Before we explore the details of your daughter's story, how, how are you guys doing? I know that this must have been an emotional past couple of weeks with graduation in the sort. Um, their graduation was in May, and um, it, that was very hard for us, for sure. Um, she should have graduated. Her birthday was hard. She should have turned 22 in February. So those have been hard milestones, I think. Jill? How yes, you, how you we doing? were. How you doing? We're doing all right. We're there's a sadness that doesn't go away, and sometimes it's more intense than others, but it's always there every day. We were so excited about her graduation because she was excited about it. We had uh, grandparents had planned to go, and and some friends from Pullman also had planned to go. So it was it was just a really sad time for us. I'm sure. I can't imagine how painful it is to be continually asked, like I'm going to, to recount the days and hours leading to Lauren's death. I think what's central to Lauren's story also illuminates the problems that we have on many college campuses, the umpteen attempts that she made, Matt, to try to get some help from the university. Can right. you can you go through some of those for our audience who knows kind of generally the story of Lauren, but don't know the details of her attempts and her her, her reach outs for help? Um, I think this even goes back to uh, when Jill called uh, concerned about um, after Lauren had broken up, um, that that Lauren was going to pick up her car from her ex-boyfriend. And Jill called to ask about an escort and explicitly said, that this is a, a dangerous person who is a sex offender and so on, and that she was worried. Um, and after that, Lauren had called the police about harassing text mes- messages from this guy and uh, was told there isn't much that they could do. And the next day, um, the text messages escalated into extortion, and then she persisted and went back to them. And at that point, they, uh, you know, didn't do much either. Uh, they, they sort of opened a, a case, and days went by. And, and there were many more phone calls, too, from Lauren and from a lot of her friends. In all, um, you can count six women, at least, who raised very specific and repeated concerns, many, many phone calls, and were effectively dismissed. Jill, do you think when you arranged the escort for her to to retrieve the car, I'm assuming that nothing substantial, nothing bad came of that, that maybe that was the beginning of university campus police kind of dismissing this as, oh, Lauren is is being overly dramatic about what's going on. Well, I think that I, I called the campus police. I talked to dispatch. And I told them about my concerns. If you listen to the call, it's it's a long call. I wanted to make sure they understood the situation that she was lied to and that he was not who he represented himself to be. He was he was a sex offender. I was afraid that he might hurt her. And then I asked for uh, for a police escort. They routed me to campus security, and who are not part of the police. They're, they're under the police department, but they were treated separately. And so I thought that the police knew about my concerns 
but it was never connected once she started uh, started a police case. They did, they did not know when she called the next when she called two days later about the harassment. They did not know that I had previously called or that they had previously escorted her. Uh, I think that they are more responsive to parents than to than to students also, you know, so they would be more responsive to me as a parent than than to than to a female student. Matt, why do you think they were so dismissive of all these things? They were almost I don't know. They were almost in denial that something this bad could be happening in front of their own eyes. Right. Um, they they showed no curiosity about this person. Um, they didn't investigate him, even though they knew he was a sex offender. They knew he had done prison time. They didn't inquire about his parole status. They didn't go to talk to him. I think they had a mi- mindset that, well, this is a little spat, and that's part of the cultural problem of that department, I believe. Uh, a boy and a girl are having a, an argument, and, uh, well, that's, that's, you know, that's too bad. But, Jill, this was a guy – okay, I, I get that, but this was a guy – who, based on his past, obviously they should have taken this so much more seriously. Do you have any kind of deep-rooted theories on why it is they wouldn't say, okay, this is a guy who was in jail for 10 years and Mm -hmm. twice. He was in jail twice. He's out on parole. He's done some really horrible things. You would think that that would take this, Jill, to another level of just boy and a girl spat of two students. So I don't... I don't think they actually even looked up how long he was in prison. They just they noted in the police report that he was a sex offender and and it was for forcible sex abuse, so he raped someone. And uh and that was because Lauren's friend who went with her pointed pointed out in a Google search on her phone that that no, this guy's a sex offender because at first they even they even searched uh their student database even though he's they they said he's not a student. They searched the student database and found someone with a similar similar name, yeah. and uh, thought that said, oh, he's he's not a bad guy. He only has speeding tickets, you know, traffic tickets. So I just think that they didn't they they weren't concerned about uh, about being a sex offender, and uh, and then they uh, just did not look further. I think, Matt, that for all of us that read this story, we, the confusing part is these building blocks, one block after the next, that just a, just a reasonable thinker would say there comes a time where there's so many blocks mm-hmm. where they have to now take this seriously. And so sure. now we, um, have, we have a registered sex offender. We have somebody who's out on parole. We have somebody who... Uh, went to jail for rape. Now we have somebody, when she went to the police station, when your daughter went to the police station and said, I'm being, uh, I'm the victim of extortion. I, he's asking me for $1,000, otherwise he's going to publish these pictures on the internet. I guess that's what I can't get my arms around. What, when was the block? How, how were there not enough blocks at some point for them to say, whoa, we got to start taking this seriously? I don't have any answer to that. I think they were in, uh, of a mentality that uh, this is, at worst, an extortion case that's purely financial, and they couldn't get their head out of that. I, I, can't, I don't have any ex- explanation for it. And there, there's even more. Uh, 
you know, there were reports that he was going to bring a gun to campus, Correct. which he was not allowed to do. He impersonated um, he impersonated an officer trying to lure her to places. Correct. Impersonated an officer, and the the off and the uh, the officer who took that report never reported it to his supervisors. Uh, nothing came of that. Um, you, you do wonder, like, what what would it take? to get a response and I they never checked they never checked his parole status either so even though lauren emailed she emailed that he was on that he he had an offender status on parole they they didn't read the email until after she was killed and that was sent three days earlier there's another layer to this that i think at least from my way of thinking is of paramount importance moving forward if we're going to change things we're going to exact some change to try to make these campuses safer especially for females lauren matt contacted salt lake city police right she went beyond the university police department and they just wouldn't touch it and i read somewhere i'm trying to remember where i read the statement that the Salt Lake City police made in the wake of this tragedy. What is fair to say is that we all have to do better. We've got to look at ways that we can protect those we have the responsibility to protect because in the end, none of us ever want to see a tragedy like this occur again. So here was Lauren trying desperately to get some help and protection from the campus police. They're not not reacting. So yeah. you guys go to Salt Lake City Police Department, and you know what's their culpability in all this? How could they turn turn their back on a student like this? Right, and and furthermore, keep in mind that the the ex boyfriend was a resident of Salt Lake City, and so to say that there was no jurisdiction was not accurate. But um, even if it were, why aren't they working together? Um, absolutely right. The the camp the uh, uh, campus safety bill that was passed in Utah uh, does have a provision for campuses working closer with the community, and hopefully, you know, that's one of the things that will happen. What is the typical, and maybe you don't know this, maybe you only know based on Salt Lake City, I mean, you guys are in Pullman and you are both employees of Washington State University. What is what is the policy, what is the setup typically for campus police, university police vis-a-vis the city or the town's police and who 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 takes care of what especially when you consider one one person is a female student and in this case one is not and living in salt lake city right actually i'm not sure about about that i i have a sense that the the police and the campus police here in pullman work quite closely together um also the campus police have uh point people for domestic violence or, or relationship violence Issues. So when they come up, there's an expert there who can immediately, you know, go across the silos and address it. Whereas Utah had nothing like that um, when Lauren Lawrence case was going through. Jill, when you guys announced the the lawsuit, you said that you guys have watched closely since Lauren's death. What what kind of adjustments? What kind of reaction? What are they doing to make change and make it safer, a safer place? And you're, you guys just weren't satisfied. And as a result, that's why you decided to file this lawsuit. What haven't they done? Obviously, they haven't done anything or enough. What would you guys have liked to have happened in the months since October? Well, many things. I First of all, 
we wanted them to take responsibility and accountability for what happened. They wouldn't admit any wrongdoing at all. And, and so as part of that, there should have been discipline towards those who failed her. So, so many people failed her. And if any one of them would have been successful, she would still be alive today. And, you know, for example, if they had called the parole officer, mm -hmm. and so he, then he would have been put back in jail or prison. And so all the same people were, were working there with the, including the, um, the chief of police who recently announced his retirement, but he had, he had a, there was a culture there that was undertrained, unprofessional, disrespecting of women. And so I, even though they had some new policies and training, if the people who work there do, do not implement them and take them seriously, there won't be real change. And so, for example, uh, Officer Darris, who's who was the one that Lauren worked with on most often that she had that she had 18 phone calls with. He uh, after he was not he was not disciplined at all for failing Lauren, and he's the one who didn't uh, report the um, didn't report the impersonation of an officer, for example, and other things. But he um, he was disciplined for a separate domestic violence. Uh, incident where he did the wrong thing again, and he's been trained in between that time. So if you have people who are not taking the training seriously or 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 don't believe in it, then you won't get good outcomes. I've also heard from people who work in housing that nothing has changed in housing. So housing did not take the domestic violence seriously. Uh, so I, I was just really concerned that they never took took responsibility so then if you don't do that, then how can you change? And so, Matt, you know what the reaction from listeners are going to be and what the reaction to, to what Jill just said was back then, which is they didn't take responsibility because it was a legal matter. They were afraid, okay, if we say we messed up and we could have saved this young person's life, then what happens next from a legal standpoint? Right, Matt? Right. Yeah, and I think if they would have found that if they had talked to us as we asked them to, um, they would have uh, received a much better deal. Um, we were very open to talking with them. We wanted to work together with them, and and you know uh, what would the outcome of that would have been? Acceptance of responsibility, holding people accountable, and um, it would have been a pretty good outcome, I think. So instead, I think they just listened to their legal counsel and decided to, it's a little bit like the uh, car insurance card that says, do not admit responsibility. Right. They followed that, that kind of a route, which I think was short-sighted. And, um, and it certainly was not the right thing to do. And it also is just not, as Jill pointed out, the way to improve safety in that organization. And there's a human element. Not only did they follow the insurance card, Matt, but yeah. it was it would have been uncomfortable for them to have to look at you guys and talk to you guys. Uh, who knows how they feel in their hearts, but we all know as human beings that it's easier sometimes just to put up our hand and, and just avoid the situation altogether, which is exactly what they did. So they may have been doing it for both legal reasons and for their own comfort and their own safety. 
You know, it, it's um, it's unfortunate. I think this is this is truly the last resort for us. Was the lawsuit? We think it's having some positive effect already. Um, I wish it hadn't gone that direction, but I think in the end, um, it will prod the university to become a responsible institution. The lawsuit, Jill is a tricky one as I read about it. It's a Title IX, well, at least at the center of it, it's a Title IX, but there's some question about kind of the gray area because of the fact that this man was not a student. Can you guys kind of address how that comes into play in terms of the lawsuit? Well, uh, so we're not, we're not attorneys ourselves, so we won't go deep into the legal theory, but, but she, her only access to police was through the campus police because she lived on campus. And so she, she was, since they were basically unresponsive to her, they never, in the 10 days after her first complaint of the harassment, they never interviewed him even. They never tried to find him. And so she was, and she tried to go to other police. They only routed her back to the campus police. So she was denied access to police, and she was denied access to a safe education, obviously because she was killed. You know, so it's um, so that is that is really a denial of civil of her civil rights. She um, and I, I think it was based on that she was a woman. They had this they had this attitude that you know women are hysterical. They. Uh, Exaggerate. Exaggerate. Yeah. yeah, that this is worse than it is. You know, we know it's just, it's probably a just a scam that someone is, you know, trying to get money from her. So I'm, I view our case as very strong. It's just, I keep going back to the, the, the frustrating, and if it's frustrating for me, just imagine how you guys feel. I can't, I can't even imagine how you guys feel. The frustration is, okay, it's just a spat. He's just trying to get money from her. Okay, but at some point, past extortion, pictures, uh, there comes a moment that even the least reasonable human being on the face of the earth says, okay, we've got more on our hands than we thought. Matt, you've made clear, and I want to point this out, this is important, you've made clear that your family, and Jill has also, uh, that your family has no intention or desire of profiting from any damages right. that you might be awarded, they're going to go to a fund. Is that right? In Lauren's name, and we're going to try to try to help campus safety along. Is that right? That's exactly right. And uh, we will, um, you know, after legal expenses, any additional monies would go into that that um, nonprofit. And we have it's the uh, the Lauren McCluskey Foundation is the um, charitable organization that we founded in January and um, and that focuses on three areas that were relevant to Lauren's life. But absolutely right, we will not profit uh, one dime. What are those three areas? Um, the three areas of the Lauren McCluskey Foundation are um, campus safety and uh, animal welfare. Lauren loved animals, especially cats. And then also amateur athletics, uh, supporting students, in particular uh, underprivileged youth um, in a- a- amateur athletics. But Matt, it could be any, it could yeah. be any student athletes. It could be any sure. student athletes that we'd yeah, help. Yeah. Guys, what can we do? What can I do besides continue the conversation? What can we do to honor Lauren's memory on this side of the state and all of our listeners that are spread out through the country? 
Um, what can we do to honor Lauren's memory and, and maybe a small part of improving campus safety? You've got our attention. Sure. Um, I mean, I think donating to the Lauren McCluskey Foundation is a great start. Okay. And, uh, but not only that, there are, there are lots of ways to be involved. And I think it's a start of a, I, would, I know the word is overused, but a revolution. And I think that people are going to really start taking this seriously around the country. Also, we're going to have a, uh, a race for campus safety in Pullman, Washington oh, on we? October 5th. Okay, October good. 5th. Okay. So if any of your listeners want to come over, please please come on over. It's going to be a, a day of uh, pretty good activities, but it'll be a 5K run. So. Okay. okay. And, and they don't. many of our listeners don't have to come over because they're there already. So October, well, the, October the 5th. How do, how do we sign up for that? We go onto the, uh, onto the website? How do we do that? Yeah, if you go onto uh, the laurenmccluskey.org website, you can do that, and um, that'll, that'll show you where to go. Well, Jill and Matt, you guys are incredible. Uh, um, not difficult in the least to understand why Lauren was as sharp and talented and loving as she was hearing you guys and just visiting with you guys for the last 15 or 20 minutes. As I said at the top, on behalf of everyone over here, we send our very best positive energy to all you guys in Pullman. Hang in there. And uh, as a parent of a soon-to-be college-bound boy, I'm, I'm thanking you in advance for all the work that you're going to do trying to make campuses safer for everyone, men and women. And so thank you so much and all the best to, the, to both of you and your son and, and all of the friends and family yeah. that loved Lauren so much. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. The voices of Jill and Matt McCluskey, who lost their daughter Lauren, back in October of 2018. Just a tragic story as they show a lot of courage, keeping the conversation alive and trying to do better and make campus safety stronger, especially as it relates to female students. They came to us courtesy of the Zeke's Pizza Hotline, as all our guests do. If you're ever looking for a spot to have great pizza, a nice selection of craft beer, comfortable place to watch sports or to celebrate sports, Zeke's Pizza is now all over the Puget Sound area, and you'd be supporting a very important partner of Mitch Unfiltered that has in part made this podcast experience possible. By the way, congratulations to the 10U Redmond Sammamish Little League team that always celebrates at Zeke's Pizza. They won the Washington State title for 10U in baseball. If you're home and not in the mood to go out, want some Northwest-style pizza, craft beer delivered to your door, Zeke'sPizza.com, very easy option. Zeke's Pizza representatives arrive at your door, not a third-party delivery service, shoulder cooler for the beer, and piping hot pizza. If you're ever looking for a good spot to take your youth baseball team, like the 10U Redmond Sammamish team after a big game, lots of tables and a staff that bends over backwards to make that lunch or dinner just right. How about Zeke's Pizza? Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. It's time to welcome back an old friend to the show. Joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline from The Athletic. He covers the Mariners and does a terrific job. It's Corey Brock. Corey, you've done some some nice pieces in the last couple of weeks, one of which was why should we watch the Mariners in the second half of the season? I think you gave you gave five reasons, right? And you started with Mitch Hanniger, and we'll start right there. During the offseason, Steve Phillips told me that he'd be willing to trade just about everyone on the roster 
except for Mitch Haniger. You'd want to build around him, and he just had an awful first half of the season that ended with injury. Should we reassess how we feel about Haniger moving forward, Corey? I mean, I think he's – well, first of all, there's a couple layers to that. You know, as they went through that rebuild last fall, Mitch, you know, I thought – you know, maybe really everybody should be in play here. If you're going to move James Paxton, Mike Zunino, Robinson Cano, and Edwin Diaz off the roster, don't you maybe have to look at Mitch Haniger, a guy who, uh, you know, is not a young player anymore, and it certainly was sort of at the apex of his career, having that monster year last year. Wouldn't you at least entertain offers? And maybe they did, but ultimately they decided to hang on to him um, to sort of build around him and a few other guys moving forward. Well, you know, everything that went right for him last year has sort of gone wrong for him this year for different reasons. Uh, most recently, he had the, uh, the ruptured testicle, um, which is going to delay his return in the second half. He's going to come back, but, you know, I seem to think that there's still s- some upside for this guy. You know, his batting average on balls in play was, is really low. He's largely been unlucky. I still think he's a very good player. Um, I, I just don't think we're going to quite see those numbers that we saw last year. But I still think he is a, a productive player. I think he's a good presence in the clubhouse for many of these young guys who are going to be coming to Seattle and taking up permanent residence in that clubhouse. I think he could help them in that regard. And, and most importantly, can still serve them well on the field. Corey, it sounds if I'm reading between the lines here like you think Jerry may have blown an opportunity to fetch some great prospects and maybe that, that window now is closed, what you could get for him if you tried to redo it this next offseason. Yeah, I think, yeah, the window's closed. I think, yeah, he, he is here uh, for the foreseeable future. His value was never higher than it was going to be last year. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, I'm just saying that, yeah, they probably couldn't have, could have gotten a haul for him, but I'm not going to fault Jerry for hanging on to him because ultimately you've got to build around somebody. And this is a guy who is still under club control for several more years, Mitch. He's not making anything. It's close to the major league minimum. Um, I think there's a value in having guys like Mitch on your roster who are club controlled, who are talented players and uh, guys who are good leaders in the clubhouse. So I think there was a lot of pluses there. And I don't know if they're kicking themselves necessarily. Um, I I still think they did pretty well with some of the other deals they made. But, boy, it's always uh, kind of fun to wonder what could have been, right? Corey Brock is the voice from The Athletic, covers the Mariners in a terrific fashion, joining us on the Zeke Speaks Hotline. You talked about some other reasons why maybe the Mariners' second half of the season with all the losses still would be interesting to some. You write about uh, the pitching staff, in particular Kikuchi and Gonzalez. You like Gonzalez as a what? And then part B is you're still intrigued by Kikuchi as he continues to get acclimated uh, to this major major change, this major shift in his world, right? Yeah, and it's it's almost like in some regards, Mitch, that we got to give him a, a, a pass on this a full year. I, and, and maybe that's not completely fair, uh, but I think it's reasonable uh, to look at it that way because this year really doesn't mean a whole lot, right, in terms of where the team is in the standings and making a push for the postseason. This was never about that. This was about at least in this case, in Kikuchi's case, getting him acclimated to the big leagues, having him understand how differently things work here, adjusting to the workload. You know, one of the things they've sort of asked him to stop doing is uh, throwing a lot between starts, which is something Japanese pitchers do a lot, that maybe that was kind of taking a toll. So I have to think he's going to be a better pitcher in 2020 and beyond than he's shown this year. And I think we've seen enough glimpses 
uh, I know we have, to, to lead me to believe that he's going to be a serviceable uh, mid-rotation guy. And I think Marco Gonzalez is kind of the same. I, you know, this team, I think what it really lacks is a really top-tier pitcher. Yeah. And they have some interesting pieces in the minor leagues. But if they're going to have to make a move, if they are going to make a move in the standings and moving forward in 2020 and beyond, they're going to have to find a way to get some frontline pitching yeah. in here. Uh, like I said, there's some interesting minor league pieces coming. But the, uh, the other guys that are kind of here – are complementary pieces, and those are important. Let's not, and that's not to diminish uh, Marco Gonzalez or Yusei Kikuchi. I just think you need to get a guy in here that's going to miss some bats, uh, going to be have some electric stuff. Because at this point, they don't have a lot of starting pitchers that are going to miss bats and get a lot of strikeouts. And as we all know, Corey, getting a frontline starter, an ace is tricky, and it's tricky for the Mariners for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the traditional ways, which is where do you go get that ace and how much do you spend? But for the Mariners, as you kind of alluded to, what's also tricky about that is trying to figure out when do you do it? When are we at the spot in this you know, this progression, this transformation of this roster and this program, this this organization that we're ready now. Okay, now let's go spend money and resources in getting that frontline starter. Is it this next offseason? Is it the following offseason? You've got to kind of time that right, correct? Absolutely. And I think if you really are being honest with yourself and looking in the mirror and saying that, hey, uh, when are we really, when's our window of contention truly going to open? And that's not just dependent on what they have with their roster. It's also looking around the rest of the American League, right, as to uh, what's the roster of the Astros, the Yankees. Correct. What's that going to look like? Are they going to be able to make a move there and trend upward when those other teams begin to level off or even, or even dip a little bit? But, you know, they've said mid-2020 all along, Mitch, and I thought that was very, very optimistic. Um, I would, uh, mid 2020. Yeah, I would say 2021 seems a little bit more realistic to me. Logan Gilbert, the first round pick from last year, just Great. got bumped up to double A. Yep. Uh, Justin Dunn is in double A, a pitcher, and they still like Justice Sheff- Sheffield a lot. Um, he's taken a little bit of a step back, but it looks like he's got his bearing straight in double A after a rough go in the Pacific Coast League, which is no fun for pitchers. So I think they have some pretty interesting pieces coming. I just think maybe it's a little short-sighted to think that these guys can help you contend in 2020. Well, let's talk about more more of those pieces you mentioned Jake Fraley who's a center fielder uh, he's had some great success since they acquired him uh, during the offseason in both double-a AA and triple-a I want you to talk more about Sheffield who you just kind of beat me to the punch on really struggled mightily in Tacoma but I think since he went down to double-a has been really really good in his few starts and then there's obviously the future future is Jared Kelnick, and I don't know, maybe we're three, four years away from him. Take some of those storylines on for us, Corey. Yeah, Sheffield is an interesting one, Mitch. You know, he was the key piece uh, in the Yankees deal with James Paxton. This is a guy that's a very high pedigree, and they thought uh, they thought enough of to – you know, really insists that he gets thrown in that deal. But, you know, he, so he was pitching in the Pacific Coast League to start out the year where he was about four years younger than the average player there. He's 23 years old, and he took his lumps. You know, Mitch, they're using that same slick baseball in the Pacific Coast League as they are in the big leagues this year. And in some of those bandbox ballparks, it's just not a lot of fun. So he really struggled there. But, you know, so they sent him back to double-A, wanted him to work on his pitch mix, uh, really hammer in on throwing strike one. And he's been great there. I think the ERA in, what, six starts is uh, under two. Uh, the strikeouts are up. We always look at hits uh, 
per nine innings. That's in a good spot. So I think this is probably what the doctor ordered in terms of Sheffield. And you touched upon a guy a little bit, Mitch, that I'm really excited about, the um, Jared Kelnick, who I wrote a story about a couple weeks ago. You know, they brought him in for a pre-draft workout at Safeco Field, when it was still Safeco Field, um, three days before the draft in 2000. Uh, 18, and he just blew them away with some of the stuff that he did. And I think that was a big reason why they insisted on expanding the deal, the Cano-Diaz deal, to get Kelnick. So he's already in high A this year. We'll probably spend all of next year in double A. But I think he could, he's a guy that can move reasonably fast and maybe could be in the big leagues in two years. So uh, for my money, he's about as exciting a prospect as the Mariners have had in a long, long time. Anybody this year that we should be waiting on? Anybody when September call-ups come around, Corey, that we should be excited about or nothing really? down that pike. No, I, th- I think the one, and you kind of touched upon him a little bit. I think uh, Jake Fraley, who they got in the Zunino deal, remember the marquee guy in that deal, Mitch, was right. Malik Smith, right. who certainly uh, showed a lot better as of late than he did early in the year. But I, you know, I, I jokingly tell people that I think this may go down as uh, people will start calling this the uh, Jake Fraley deal after a while. He's just been a hitting machine in double A, pushed his way to triple A, and you know, this is a guy with some power, uh, he's going to finish with over 20 home runs and 20 steals this year. Uh, he could run a little bit. I think he's a pretty decent defender, a guy that really profiles well at the top of the lineup, maybe first or second. And he's exciting to me. I would love to see him in September. I would love to see him get you know, 50, 60 plate appearances. And I don't think that's uh, pie in the sky there. I think this is something they're going to heavily consider as we move a little bit deeper into the season. Heck, maybe he's even up before September 1 when the rosters expand and they get a good chance to look at him. But, hey, why not? As we move in the second half, it's kind of like, hey, why not? That's kind of my motto. Um, Let's not stick to any preconceived ideas about what we need to do about getting guys playing time. Let's get Shed Long back up here when he's healthy. Let's let him go. Uh, Let's get Jake Fraley up here. Let's see what he could do. So I'm all about the young guys in the second half. And for fans, I think that they should be as well. You know, it's almost becoming um, Jerry DePoto's claim to fame, maybe unintentionally. The other guy in the deal, I remember when he came on our radio show right after the Arizona deal, and he tried to convince me, Mitch, Mitch, don't sleep on Mitch Hanniger as the other guy in the Arizona deal, and now you've got the other guy in the Tampa Rays deal. Almost, It's almost to the point where, I don't want to say this, I don't want anybody to get mad at me, but it's almost as if the other guy seems to outperform the guy in the trade. Yeah, and that's kind of funny, but it it's, it's also goes to show that Hey, you know, maybe as as you're talking about these deals and you're kind of evaluating other pieces, let's say in the Diamondbacks farm system, and, okay, so you want to trade for Gene Segura, you're willing to take on his contract, um, you think he's going to be productive. Well, let's let's see what else they have. Um, maybe uh, another player who's been roadblocked and maybe a guy that's just on the verge of taking off. And I think that was the case with Mitch. He got a chance to play every day over here. And, for, you know, for my money, that was one of the better Mariners seasons I've seen in quite a while, yeah. uh, what he did last year. Yeah. So uh, as we as we finish up with Corey Brock, who covers the Mariners in a tremendous way for the athletic, and I, I urge everybody that's got a few extra dollars each month to put to put it up for the athletic. I, I love reading the work, not only Corey, but all, all of your peers. Let's finish with this. Look into your crystal ball a year from now. I know what the Mariners want us to believe will be the situation around this organization a year from now. I don't see it. You kind of said you don't see it. 
Uh, they could win more games next year. There's no question about that. They could be a little bit more interesting. I think there's little little doubt about that. But can they be really anything more than just an interesting story one year from today? All-star break, let's say, 2020. I think they will be better. I think the record will be will indicate that. I think you'll have some young players up here uh, making uh, positive contributions. Um, Jake Fraley. We uh, we haven't talked about J.P. Crawford, who I really right. like the right. way he's played. Right. Malik Smith maybe has better footing at that point. And then also you could see these other pieces a little clearer. I think the pitcher becomes a little clearer on guys like Logan Gilbert, Cal Raleigh, the catcher who just got bumped up to Double A. Justin Dunn is maybe a guy who uh, makes the rotation next year. So I think, yeah, I think they'll be better. Uh, I don't think they're going to, I don't think next year is their contending year, but I think you're going to have a better idea of the team that you're, you have and are going to have moving into 2021. And we'll sort of understand where these guys fit. And from an organizational standpoint, it'll give them a chance to sort of address what else do we need? What else? This money that we've saved now yeah. and that we said that we're going to go out and spend if needed, how are we going to allocate that money to, say, maybe go get a pitcher or, or whatever? But I think, uh, the, I think the pitcher will start to become a little more clear uh, next season, um, and I still think 2021 is their year. Corey, get back to those five-year-olds. They've given, I appreciate they've, it. They've lended you to us, to Mitch Unfiltered, for long enough, and we can hear it. They, 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 your time is up, Corey. Your time is up on Mitch Unfiltered. But thank you. Great work in The Athletic. Love the stuff. Love reading the stuff. And I appreciate you coming back on the podcast. Thanks so very much. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks, Mitch. Corey Brock of The Athletic. Reasons to watch the Mariners in the second half of the season. Did he sell you? Work or live near downtown Seattle, you now have the opportunity to discover Seattle's most unique downtown bar, the Rick House Whiskey Bar, located at the Daniels Broiler in the brand new Hyatt Regency. The Rick House Whiskey Bar, secluded, a high-end bar featuring over 150 of the finest spirits from around the world. You'll have access to the finest American, Scotch, Irish whiskeys, Japanese whiskeys, all kinds of opportunities at the Rick House Whiskey Bar with two happy hours from 4 to 6.30 and 9 p.m. to closing. Take $4 off any of these Daniels classics during happy hour, including filet mignon steak strips, classic steakhouse burger, bacon-wrapped scallops, Dungeness crab legs, fried calamari, and more. Everyone knows the best way to look at Daniel's world-class quality is through the happy hour eyes. Experience a world-class downtown bar, the Rick House Whiskey Bar, at the new downtown Daniel's at the new Hyatt Regency. Easy to get to and a world-class steakhouse. Unfiltered. I've been, uh, I've been hunting this next guest down. He joins us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. He's the senior editor for Forbes magazine. He writes on the business of sports. He's Kurt Bodenhausen. I hope I've pronounced it right, Kurt, after all the you time. Got that I got it. There you go. You know, I, I you have written and you have uh, published some interesting pieces in the last couple of weeks. I reached out to you a few weeks ago during the NBA's free agent spending frenzy just to try to grasp or get a grasp on how financially healthy the NBA must be 
right now with all this amount of guaranteed money that some of these guys are getting. It's outrageous. It's astounding. And it's not even it's not even the max players that I care much about. It's these role players that get 10, 15, 20 million a season for three or four years. Explain to me to the best of your ability, Kurt, what's going on that's uh, so good right now for the NBA. Yeah, business is booming. Absolutely. Um, franchise values are soaring through the roof. Uh, it started, I think you got to go back to Steve Ballmer uh, buying the Los Angeles Clippers. That kind of, that everything took off from there. So that was 2014. He paid $2 billion. At the time, people thought a billion dollars was going to be the high mark for what what somebody might pay for the Clippers when Don Sterling was forced to sell. Uh, the people thought it was just crazy. Microsoft, you know, here's a guy with $20 billion. Well, he doesn't care. Uh, he'll, he'll just pay $2 billion for the team. Uh, Steve Ballmer is now worth $40-something billion, uh, and, and the team is worth uh, definitely more than $2 billion and probably had one of the best summers of any, any team. Uh, but, and so really what, what we saw is right after – Ballmer brought, bought in, the value of the TV contract tripled, uh, the national TV deal with ESPN and TNT, way more than anybody thought it was going to go up. The global prospects of the NBA are tremendous, uh, and, and so that's why you're seeing so much interest in the league. That's Their revenue growth is dramatically faster than what we're seeing in, say, the NFL um, or Major League Baseball, and the outlook is significantly better. Uh, and, then, and then with the CBA... As it is, um, with, with revenue going up so much and, and expenses being locked into 50%, uh, basically, of basketball-related income, teams are making more money than they ever have. I mean, just about everybody's making money now in the NBA unless you, you really, you know, some of these mid-market teams like uh, the, the Cavaliers and, and the Oklahoma City Thunder who, who have had huge payrolls and had to pay the tax, they might lose money. Uh, but everybody else is making money. You talk about the TV money. Can it keep going the way it's going? Are we watching games in traditional TV ways like we always have? Or at some point, do they have to shift and, and talk about technology and the TV money is going to plateau at some point, Kurt? Uh, well, we've been waiting for the TV money bubble to burst for 30 years. You can go back and see the stories uh, saying that it can't go on like this and it just keeps going on because uh, live sports is the one thing that people continue to watch um, in real time. Uh, I, and so they're locked into into 20, 2022, I think. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when the, when the deal runs through. Uh, and so I think you'll see another round of, of increases. Absolutely, uh, the NBA property is still hot, uh, and I think we're we're still to be determined about what that next look is going to be in terms of content delivery, uh, what's going to be streamed, what's going to be delivered uh, straight to your phone, you know, how, what, what, what property is, what properties are going to be over the air. Um, and then the global, globally, I mean, the, the only comparable sport really on a global basis is soccer. Uh, so the NBA, I, I know they want to, um, they see the value uh, in, in terms of going into literally almost every single market. And, and being able to sell their rights there, yeah. um, hugely popular in China. They just uh, gave teams now starting 
next season, the ability to go out and sell two sponsorships outside the United States and outside their local market. Teams were uh, companies were restricted to only marketing within 75 miles of the home team. Now they're going to go out and sell so that the Warriors can, uh, you know, a company can buy the Warriors logo and um, IP rights and go out or intellectual property rights and go out and, and use that in China or Japan or Germany, whatever the case may be. Uh, so, so that's a, that before the NBA controlled all of that sponsorship inventory. Now they're going to let the teams go out and do it on their own. And that's similar to the, the uh, European soccer model with what Manchester United and the Liverpools and Chelsea's have been doing where Manchester United goes up and signs an official bank and uh, can sign one in China and then a separate one in Malaysia and a separate one in Japan. Wow. I don't think the NBA is there yet. Um, and again, they're restricting it only so this is a trial. It's very much like the patch program, which which was a three-year trial program with patches on the jerseys. Uh, this is another trial program they're they're introducing this season, and it, it's it can it, you know the long-term potential is huge. You're listening to the dulcet tones, and I mean dulcet tones. He sounds like he's right next door in the next room. Kurt Bodenhausen is joining us, the senior editor of Forbes magazine on the business of sports, and it's interesting as you just went on and on about how healthy the NBA is. <laughs> I'll try, to cut, I'll try to cut it back. No, 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 no. I don't want you to. But here's what you didn't even include. We haven't even started with gambling money. The NBA and Adam Silver has been out in front for years. There's billions, I'm assuming you're going to tell me, Mitch, there's billions of gambling dollars that's just sitting at the doors of these professional leagues. When is that going to come flying through to change the bottom line for this? This group. Yeah, well, well, you know, you listen to Mark Cuban when when they passed the the legislation, the Supreme Court passed the legislation. He said that every every sp- professional sports franchise just doubled in value. So, not not that Mark Cuban would ever uh, <laughs> exaggerate trade in hyperbole or anything, <laughs> but um, uh, and then his his partner in uh, uh, the owner of the Houston Rockets said, you know, I don't see much of a uh, much movement in terms of the value of my franchise because of this. So I think it's somewhere in between. The, the, the NBA is not on the doorstep of billions of dollars. But as you point out, I mean, they are certainly the, arguably the most progressive league in terms of um, maximizing uh, or being open to change and trying out new things, um, whether it's the Jersey Patch program or some of the stuff they've been doing internationally. So I, I think there is a lot of potentially a lot of money on the table, but there's a lot of people who are trying to get their hands in the cookie jar, whether it's uh, certainly the the states and municipalities uh, want their cut. So how much is going to be left over at the end for teams, I I think is still really uh, to be determined. There's been a few studies out there, but they're they're dealing strictly in conjecture and and guesswork right now, um, and, and so it, it's still to be uh, to be seen. I mean, the NBA is 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 becoming big business. I mean, they're closing in on nine billion dollar revenue business. Uh, is it going to add? Two, three billion dollars. I don't think so. But it, but it's not, it adds a little incremental growth. So you know it adds a few percentage points, and and maybe they can start generating two, three hundred million dollars. The, the 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 whole key with the gambling thing, they're going to generate some sponsorship revenue. Are they going to get a cut of the actual gambling fees? I don't know. Uh, that that that's a tough sell. The 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 key though is the engagement factor. If you can get more people watching your property because you can make in-game betting and and that makes your content that much more valuable. I think that's 
wherein lies the real it's value like fantasy uh, football. for these it's, sports leagues. It's like fantasy football and what it's done for the 100%. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. You know, that, I said, that crummy Thursday night game, uh, means something. NFL yeah. game yeah. that nobody would watch. Right. You've got right. X million number of people tuning in. Just right. oh, let me see how my fan. I got you know the running back in this game. I'll yeah. check it out. I, I want to segue. I want to segue to uh, some other things that are happening in the in the business of sports. But as an aside, I'm just thinking that 25 years ago, the idea that money in many ways isn't really what's coming into play with these mega free agents changing teams. It's so large and it's regulated that you know Kawhi Leonard, for example. He knows the numbers that the agent's not getting him more and more and more money because he knows what he can get there and he knows what I can get here and he's making decisions based on other factors. And even even the NFL agents, Kurt, are becoming less and less important. We see players now representing themselves all the time. Out here in Seattle, we had Richard Sherman represent him himself. We've got uh, Bobby Wagner, the middle linebacker, representing himself for this new mega deal that he's trying to negotiate with the Seahawks. Slowly but surely, the agents are the only ones that are suffering in all of this a little bit, right? Right. Well, and the media, as, as these guys decide they want to they go through, the, whether the Players' Tribune or yes. uh, yes. interrupted and, yeah. and tell their stories they, unfiltered with, without, <laughs> without that pes, pesky media getting in the way of it. Um, but, yeah, you're 100% right. Uh, it, it is sad. I was talking to an NBA agent, a uh, prominent NBA agent last week, who was <laughs> we were just having a kind of back-and-forth conversation on this, and he said he's just, he just stunning. He's never seen anything like this, where people leaving huge sums of money on the table um, because – they, you know, they they just prefer this situation over another. Right. Um, it, you just have never seen anything like it. Um, and, and part of it is, it's the money is is so big um, that so you know you're going to make twenty eight million dollars a year instead of thirty three million dollars a year. I mean, so you leave $25 million a year, which is an astronomical number, but I think these guys, particularly the ones who have the big shoe contract, um, it makes it a little easier to say, you know, if I'm making $20 million off the court as well, you know, what, what, what's an extra 4 or $5 million a year? Um, we saw Anthony Davis waive his trade kicker. He was entitled to the $4 million right. to get traded to right. uh, Los Angeles. He had every right to be. He's, you know, he's throwing away $4 million, and he says – you know, uh, my legacy is more important than, than a few dollars. Um, and, and the team, I, the Lakers can be better if they put that $4 million uh, into their payroll. Correct. So right. it's, a, it's a fascinating time, um, and unlike ever, anything we've ever seen. But don't worry about the NBA agents too much because the, 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 okay? the contracts okay. that are being handed out are so crazy. Uh, NFL agents, the NFL agency business is brutal. I mean, it has gotten so cutthroat uh, with these guys. And, and as you point out, uh, some of them are dropping their agents uh, the way it is now with the, uh, you know, the, the rookie scale where none of these guys make any money as rookies. So the agents can barely charge these guys uh, anything uh, for their rookie contract because the money's already locked in what it is. I mean, what's the, the agent's not really that's doesn't correct. have much to negotiate. That's correct. And that's so why a guy, people- guy, guy like Kawhi Leonard has Uncle Dennis – Instead of, uh, right. 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 <laughs> you want to talk to me? Talk with, to my Uncle Dennis. He's with gonna... <laughs> a max contract, there is no, you know, Kawhi is getting a max contract. That's it. 100%. That's and it. it used to be that the agent worked the back room, making things happen in terms of steering a client a certain way. And now the player just does it. Whether it's Kawhi or LeBron or would they, you know, they're the voice out front saying, 
I'm going to steer my way into this market because this is where I want to go. I don't need my agent to do that. Uh, and, 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 and the teams, you know, the players are teaming up and talking to each other, and it's not the agents working these back uh, office deals. The players are just doing it almost out, out in the open, uh, which, you know, as Adam Silver talked about last week, is, you know, a significant problem because people are just not even flaunting the rules. They're just completely ignoring the, the current rules. Kurt, before you go, do you have any thoughts on the cries of the World Cup soccer ladies that they're not getting paid what they deserve compared to men? I've seen some articles, one in the Washington Post in the last couple of weeks, trying to understand, make, make heads and tails of revenue and is the women's game bringing in the revenue that they say that they are? Are they as underpaid as they say that they are? you have any thoughts on how to settle this crisis? Do we just pay them exactly what we pay the men, or is there some sort of middle ground on this, Kurt? <laughs> Much smarter people than me have not figured this out. Uh, I, I think there's two different things going on. The, that's the problem, and, and depending on which side you line up on, you pound the table with one argument or the other. The, the people that say that the men, you know, people are comparing apples and oranges, too, is the problem. They're comparing uh, the, the pay in the World Cup. Um, when the men's World Cup generates exponentially more money uh, than the women's World Cup. So the, the prize money, yeah. similar to the reason that NBA players make more than WNBA players, is the league generates 100 times more revenue than the WNBA does. Um, that's why the prize money is uneven there. The argument about why uh, the U.S. women's national team makes less than the men's national team is doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and, and the idea that you can't allocate the, some of the sponsorship and TV money from the men to the women, I just, I don't buy it. Uh, you think it's that, one that, pool of money? You think it's one pool of money for United States soccer, and it's a very easy thing to just distribute it equally on both sides? Uh, it, 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 it's certainly more equitably than it is right now. I mean, the, the Wall Street Journal looked uh, very closely at game day revenue where, where the women were out drawing the men. Um, for game day stuff, uh, you know, that's a pretty good indicator of of, of how interested people are and the and and the revenue uh, that you generate. Um, so, uh, you know, it's 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 crazy uh, because of how strong their performance has been. Uh, and you, you can't argue that uh, there isn't tremendous interest, whether you're looking at what's happening on social media or on TV. Uh, it's it's a team that, cap, you know, captured the, the country's attention this year, as they did four years ago. And obviously the men's team doesn't have a lot to show uh, on the national stage or global stage uh, for what they've done. So I think we're, we're hopefully inching towards a, a better situation and, and this seems to be this year seemed to be a tipping point um, but but I, I know we've said that before so yeah you can only hope Kurt Bodenhausen is the senior editor of Forbes magazine very nice to finally catch up with you you got to follow him on Twitter I've been a fan of yours and the business of sports for a long time a fan uh, of your your work in Forbes magazine from afar I thank you for being on Mitch Unfiltered and I hope that you won't be a stranger and I can uh, chase you down again sometime, Kurt. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Mitch. I appreciate it. Great to hear from Kurt Bodenhausen, the business of sports, senior editor of Forbes magazine. 
So when are you going to take me up on my offer? When are you going to call the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage, Jordan Flowers and his team, to find out if you could be saving a lot of money every month on a refi of your home? 30-year fixed mortgage rates are now in the threes, and I'll bet that more than half of our homeowning audience could save serious money every month with a refi. 2017's J.D. Power, number one lender in customer satisfaction, that's Guild Mortgage. The Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage, phone number 425-250-3150. As I like to say, 425-250-CAM Chancellor K.J. Wright. They feature three top 1% loan officers in the United States just in the Kirkland office alone. They'll set the payoff schedule to the amount of months you're already into your loan so you don't lose any time on the payoff. Again, it's 425-250-3150. Over 55 years in the mortgage business, one of the oldest around. Find the loan to fit your life. The Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. All right, episode 49 continues, finishing up the last segment with Hot Shot Scott. Don't forget, 49P will be out on Thursday, 50 will be out next Monday, hopefully. Finally, a good football number or a good sports number, right? You 50? like 50. Oh, way better than 49. 49 is rough. Okay. Yeah, so I we start getting into the linebackers yeah. and offensive linemen and so forth. And I got a good NBA player in Well, there's too. there's some scuttlebutt about what's going to happen on episode 50. We got to talk about episode 50. Okay, let's talk. Because I have to take I have to take the winner of the Unfiltered Majors Challenge to Pebble Beach this coming weekend and their guest. And I'm not coming back until Sunday night. <laughs> Late night. Here we go again. Looks like I'm sleeping you, on the couch. You said to me last time I saw you yes. that your idea, or did somebody give you this nope. idea? Was this your me. idea? My idea. Tell everybody your idea. I think it, because you're such a good interviewer, I have to hear it all the time. Stop but it. You've interviewed so many people. I think it would be interesting for someone to interview you, just like a like an hour long form, just a conversation. Are you the man for the job? Oh, I'm definitely the man for the job. I'm gonna put You've your... never interviewed anybody. What are you talking about? You didn't interview anybody on the, t- the T-Man show, well, I did, did sports radio for two years. I did a news... I filled in on news shows. I filled in for Ron and Don, for God's sakes. I remember doing Ron and Don shows sitting there, and Henry Winkler walks in, unbeknownst to me. <laughs> and now i got to interview the, the Fawns on the fly. Oh, you did? I did. How'd that go? Do you have that, you have that recording somewhere? It's somewhere at Cairo, yeah. But I, I did ask a question I was very proud of. What, I wondered to what... the Fawns? Yes. He was very nice, by the way. Sweetest guy ever, if you ever oh, met him. Oh, I love him. Okay. Can you imagine what it had been like to be him in like 1978? Incredible. No one cooler on the planet, right? Right. I asked him what he thought about the jump the shark term. Oh, yeah. Great question, isn't it? On the fly, I came up with that. Brilliant. (laughs) Because that whole term is like a derogatory term. So you you said to me when you were leaving the other night, you said, why don't we do a show where you interview me for the show? I think it would be interesting. That's the show. Yeah, we do like an hour. How'd you get your start? Why'd you get into radio? Why'd you pick the college you went to? Did you play sports? You know, talk about oh, high, boy. college girlfriend, anything, you know, let's get into really? it. Really? Well, sure. Like, let's, let's, let's get it. Did you have uh, anyone before your wife you thought you were going to be married to? I got lots of questions, you know, let's just get in. Let's, are you sure that people are interested in the answers? I, well, if, if I'm asking them, they'll be interested. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. All I'm right. ready. No, well, I'll be nice to you. All right, you're not a golf guy, but the British Open came and went. Mm-hmm. I didn't see much of it. Uh, and Shane Lowry, an Irishman, won. Great for Shane Lowry, first ever major. He'll never win another major. 
Okay. Yeah, he'll never win. <laughs> He's happy He's the to hear son that. of a Gaelic football star. A terrific, terrific story. He blew away the field. He played great in bad conditions on the final round. And all's well that ends well uh, for Shane Lowry. I, I don't think having uh, – being a guy who didn't see much of it, I think that there's other things that are more interesting about the British Open that I've read about okay. and that I've seen in the aftermath, like Rory McIlroy. Now – uh, did we discuss this off the air or on the air? Yeah, it's hard I to tell. I can't remember. A L- little, little bit on the air. Yeah. A little bit on the air. Because I told you I knew he missed the cut. And you so were Rory McIlroy, I have said long for a long time, going back to the old radio days. I was on the radio before I did the Is podcast. that right? Yeah. Oh. Going back to the old radio days, I, I just, you know, I see this kid, and every time I see him talk or handle a situation, he impresses me more than the last time. How old was he when he came on the scene? He was pretty young, wasn't he? Very young. Yeah. He was like a young phenom. And the best, I think the best, the best example of that is you have to go back, and I don't even know the year. He was in position to win the Masters, and then he just exploded on the, on the last nine on Sunday. Exploded in a bad way. Bad way. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, he had a huge lead. I don't know, a three, four shot lead, was about to win the Masters. He's now since gone on to win the U.S. Open a couple times, PGA Championship, British Open. He's one win away from the career Grand Slam. It's the Masters. And I remember he was a really young guy. I can't remember the year. I also remember that Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods was interviewed in the same year, and I was unimpressed with the Tiger Woods interview post-round. And then this kid got in front of a microphone and just was unbelievable. It's impressive. Just unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, tear. I mean, tears. He didn't have to do the interview, and he did yeah. it, and he talked about messing up. And, and ever since that day, I've just thought, oh, my God. And so now the, 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 the damn British Open comes to his home <laughs> course where he owns the record. Wow. And he misses the cut. I mean, there was so much pressure. The the whole country right. was waiting for this day. <laughs> was like like xing boxes on the calendar. Yeah, waiting for this day, 2019. PGA Tour was probably licking their chops every, too. Every, everybody like, everybody was like excited. Ever, great. Yeah. I mean, here's Rory gets yep. to play, on his, and he doesn't even make the cut. And then he stands in front of that microphone on Sky Sports, and I'm hoping that Steve Dion will insert the interview. Um. When he gets into post production on this on this podcast, Rory McIlroy's interview. I mean, on the verge of tears. Let me get the let me get the quote for you. This has been a week that I've been looking forward to for a long. This is him on a microphone and with tears, almost tears running down his his cheeks for a long time. And I didn't play my part, he says. But everyone in Northern Ireland who came out to watch me, they definitely played theirs. I can't wait to watch Shane Lowry over the weekend. He'll get the support that I got today. Hopefully good things will happen, and I'm hoping that he'll he'll pick up the claret jug. He'll have the claret jug. I just – this is just a portion of, yeah. of the interview. It's, just just so, so modest, so classy, so approachable. So many things that professional athletes across the globe are not. He is everything you would want – a superstar to be, and I'm just so impressed by him. Such a classy move to then tell all his fans, hey, go root for this guy now, would you? You know, I think that was a really cool move. Yeah. Essentially saying, okay, I'm out, but can you guys, the way you supported me, why don't you support this guy? Yeah. I think that's a great move. Uh, it's I really just, classy. I, I'm heartbroken for him that he wasn't able to do it, but yeah. but but there's just, it's just... It when it's an, back there in 12 years, he'll dominate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, God. <laughs> it was just such an enormous an amount of pressure. Too much, yeah. Yeah. You just can't over you can't overcome. Okay, but Brooks Kepka didn't win it, but he did air out JB Holmes 
These are just a couple of notes. J.B. Holmes plays really slow. Everybody knows that J.B. Holmes plays really slow. Can you explain that a little bit about playing slow? I mean, I I feel like I sort of know what it means. Yeah. Well, I mean, it means exactly what it is. These guys are pros. They get up to the ball. They hit it. They move it along. They move it along. And and some of them are a lot more... A, a, a lot slower. Is it just a, a lot of being over the ball and rocking some back of them and forth? Some of them, and, but but that's not Brooks Kepka aired him out at JB Holmes yeah. out because he says, "Look, when it's your t- here's this quote: when it's your turn to hit, your glove is not on. Oh, and then you start thinking about it. That's where the problem lies. It's not like it's not that he takes that long. He doesn't do anything until it's his turn, and that's the frustrating part." And he's not the only one out here who's do- doing this. So Kepka plays very fast. A lot of these guys play fast. And J.B. J. Holmes doesn't. And there's been others that have kind of whispered and rum- there's been rumblings about, hey, he's on the clock, you know, he's being timed. It-, it got to the point where apparently Brooks Kepka in the middle of the round <laughs> on Sunday, was like gesturing to the official, hey, clock. So there is was, a time limit. Tapping- yeah, he was okay. tapping his wrist like, put this guy on the clock. Jeez. And when- by the way, when you put him on the clock, that puts him on- that puts Kepka on the clock. Yeah. Right. So he was saying, "Come on, time us." I, I, it's got. And by the way, JB Holmes shot eighty-seven, and he's still taking forever, right? Eighty-seven. So Kepka didn't win, and he was frustrated. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the other thing I wanted to mention: a couple other things before we we finish up on episode forty-nine. The the debate and the controversy over the baseball. That's flying out of the ballpark at record-setting pace. Everybody I mean, thinks it's juiced. I think you told me a couple of weeks ago it looks Everybody like Everybody thinks yeah. it's juiced. And then there's a highlight. you got to see the highlight. Maybe you haven't seen it. Probably most of our listeners haven't seen it. Of this guy, Francisco Lindor, who's a nice player, and he's powerful. He hit like 38 home runs last year. This guy, Francisco Lindor, on his knee, one-handing a ball out of the ballpark. Amazing. I want somebody to watch that <laughs> and tell me. Look yeah. me in the eye right. and tell me unfiltered. That this book, there's not something going on with the ball. That yeah. he, it was like a, a rubber ball. It was like one of those magic super balls. balls. Super balls. Yeah, super balls. He one handed <laughs> it off his knee out of the ballpark. You're not supposed to be able to do that. Now, if, if you heard that the balls were juiced, would you think that MLB was behind that, or did the bashes just come out differently from year to year? Well, we know what Justin Verlander thinks. He said during the All Star break that MLB, he believes that the MLB instructed, mm. I guess it's Rawlings who makes the ball. Okay. And, you know, MLB and Rawlings are together. So Verlander thinks there's collusion. And the commissioner says, I never did it. I never instructed anybody. Now, my deputy might have. Uh, <laughs> right. I never instructed anybody <laughs> to juice the ball. But it, it, there's something going on with the ball. There's no question. I don't think anybody doubts that anymore. And and just some of these highlights, like the Francisco Lindor highlight. I'll put it on our Facebook page or something. And then I saw a couple of other things. Oh, I wanted to – I mentioned uh, Ron Francis. I – I've been meaning to okay. Let me let me get. I'll come back to Ron. Fran, we'll finish with Ron Francis. Did you see that Shaquille O'Neal was doing something called moshing? I did see it. I could, I woke up and saw the video. I couldn't believe what I was seeing for a few reasons. The music's horrible. He's like my age. He's I at a believe, festival. I can't believe he would even want to go to that. Yes, I did see it in the front row. Can I make an admission? <laughs> oh God. Okay. I didn't know that mosh could be used as a verb. Now I, I'm not I, I'm not so stupid that I don't know what a mosh pit is. I okay, know what a mosh pit is. So what did you think went on in the mosh pit? I thought I don't know. I just thought that was a <laughs> Never whole moshing. bunch. Of, I thought the mosh pit was just a whole bunch of young people that uh-huh. stand right up close to the stage. They don't sit in their seats, and they all they all, and and when when I saw that Shaq the headline Shaq was moshing, 
I just assume that's when like they pass the guy over their heads. Crowd surfing. Like, that would be like, crowd like surfing. Like Dick Vitale <laughs> yeah, at, at right. Duke. They pass him. Isn't that moshing? That's not moshing. That's crowd surfing. See, yeah, that's I, and different. And then so uh, when, when I read moshing, I truly did not, I did not know. So I looked it up and it said something about you know, dancing wildly in the mosh pit and bang, intentionally banging against oh, other people. Yeah, yeah you, you can watch plenty of fun YouTube videos where there's like a circle of people and then like four or five people will just slam into each other. Now, the moshing in like in the early 90s wasn't really that. It was just, you Did know, they call it moshing in the early 90s or is this a brand new term? No, no, it was moshing in the early 90s. The mosh pit was the place to go and I had to retire from the mosh pit. I invented one point in my life. The fact that you ever went into the mosh pit, you were a big mosh pit inhabitant? Well, I wasn't big, but you know, I was a big guy. I wasn't really scared. I'd get in there and mix it up. It is kind of fun when Pearl Jam's playing and you're slamming into people and you're 23. Okay. And, yeah. And then I got went in there like at 27 or 28 at a Pearl Jam show and I started having anxiety. And I started having a panic attack, which I don't. I don't have that. I don't get those. I couldn't breathe. I was like hyperventilating. Maybe you didn't have your medicine for the. Uh, <laughs> That's true. The Here we go. Maybe you didn't have that. Well, why were you? Why do you figure that all well, of a sudden you got panic because you were too old for this? Now maybe you, it dawned on you that I'm too old for this and I'm not in shape, good physical shape. Well, first of all, how dare you? Second of all, I was in <laughs> decent shape. No, I just think anytime someone like pushes you and you're out of control and you're not in control, you just something hit me and I haven't been back. I'm out. I had to retire from the mosh pit. I used to love it. It was a blast, but now I'm out forever. That's it. It was scary. It was kind of scary. Yeah. Did you get hurt in there or no? No, just big crowds of people sort of sway back and forth, and you're getting pushed around, and it, it could be. People, out of 10 people that are listening to this podcast, am I like the only one who didn't know what moshing was? Yeah, I hate to say it, but I think you are. Yeah. I, so uh, people uh, know that moshing is the act of dancing wildly and banging into other people on purpose, and this is what Shaquille O'Neal was doing. Yeah, I think so. Okay. And by the way, if you were going to have a mosh draft of the best moshers of all time, Shaq might go first round. <laughs> Who's yeah. a better mosher than him, right? Is, <laughs> is, is the success of moshing just how how physical you can be in the mosh pit because obviously he's seven two yeah 400 pounds yeah it doesn't hurt to be physical and to be in a little little shape too because i know, want the alt, i want the uh, the international slapping champion in the, in the <laughs> <laughs> i love I that guy I, I love that guy yeah. i want him in the mosh pit all right the final final item for today for episode 49 is that the seattle nhl team and i call them the seattle nhl team because i still don't think they have a a name yet i don't think officially no why do you are you hearing something? Well, they have like contests. You hear like you know Twitter contests or radio. But they're, contests. But they're not. They haven't been named. Yet. I don't so think they're, it's they're been still the Seattle. On. But they do have a GM, a guy named Ron Francis, who I had to look up. I remembered the name. I'm not an NHL guy. I'm not a hockey guy yeah. at all. I'm. I'm I confess. You sure it wasn't I, Russ Francis? It was not Russ Francis, <laughs> okay. the tight end. Uh, but it was Ron Francis, and I do remember the name Ron Francis. I looked it up, and he was quite a spectacular player. Right. I think he had. Like the second when he when he retired, he had the second most assists mm. in NHL history, only behind like Wayne Gretzky. So he's Impressive. like he's like a top I don't know fifty or hundred player of all time. He was also a GM, and they they hired him. And I just happened I was on this golf trip over the weekend, so I was in a faraway place, and there were a bunch of guys, most of whom I knew uh, that were in this group. One of which, who I've gotten to know a little bit, is an eight was an eighteen year NHL player, and I'm not going to name him just because. When we had the conversation, I didn't tell him I was going to go run back and be on the podcast and say what he said about Ron Francis. So I'm just going to tell you. Look at that you maturing. 
<laughs> I mean, and the old Mitch wouldn't have cared. I would have named him. Of course, I'm, you okay. I'm not named naming him. him. I'm not going right. to name him. I'm not going to name him. But he played 18 years. He was on. I think he was on a U.S. Olympic team. Okay. So he's in the United States. He was a really, really, I guess, very good. Not not a Hall of Famer, but a very good NHL player for a long time. And he's still in the business. He's in an organization. I won't tell you which organization he's in. And I said, "What do you think of Ron Francis as the GM?" And we had a, lo- a long chat about it one night over the weekend. And he said that it's controversial. There are a lot of people that think he did a lousy job when he was the GM in his last place, and I think it was with Carolina. Please don't hold me to that. Okay. Uh, he said that a lot of people didn't think that he did a very good job, and a lot of people are criticizing, in NHL circles, mm. are criticizing the Seattle hire of that thought that they could do better than Ron Francis as their first, uh, their, their first general manager. This guy who's talking to me, who the former player said, he thinks it's a bunch of BS. Oh, okay. That's he thinks good it's news. a good hire. He thinks he's a very good NHL man. He thinks it's a very good mind. He thinks it's, he's the right hire for a team that's just now coming onto the map and is going to do things in a methodical way to build for the future. And he thinks that his, the, the criticism of Ron Francis the last time around is unfair in a lot of respects because he was hamstrung. There were payroll issues oh, there were okay. ownership issues he was not allowed i guess he said that a lot of people think that he did he was afraid to make the big deal in i think carolina he's afraid to make the the big blockbuster like jerry depoto in seattle yeah and the truth is according to this guy that people in in the know in the nhl also know that he wasn't able to make those deals also because he was hamstrung by ownership. Okay. So I I, I don't That's know whether I don't know whether any of this makes sense to anybody or <laughs> yeah. anybody cares about my view. If these aren't my views, these are the views of a of a of a former player. And I I came away from the conversation as saying to myself, okay, this must be a very good hire so for the w- NHL team. Where do you sit with hockey? Because you and I like hockey about the same. So when the team comes, are you going to try to get into it? Are, do you have any interest in learning the game? Are you going to go to games? Are you going to bring your kids? Where do you well, stand Mitch, with hockey? Well, Mitch, unfiltered, you got to answer a question. By, by the way, this sounds like an interview question. I'm getting ready. Yeah, I'm prepping. I, I had that sure one. You want to ask me this now? You can't ask me this again in the interview. I had that one written on my hand. I only have room for two more. Yeah. The answer to the question, and I've I've gone through this a little bit before, and this is what I'm a little concerned with on the on the podcast where you interview me for a year, an hour, because a year. I, I feel like <laughs> it's gonna feel I, like it. <laughs> I feel like that I told all these stories. This oh, will just okay. be a lot of stories, right. but I, I mean we can do it. Look, the only reason that I'm not a hockey fan is because of where I grew up. Same, I grew up here. Yeah, I grew up in. If Seattle. I had if I had grown up in Boston, right. or New York, yeah. or Chicago, or Detroit, or Toronto. Uh, I would be probably a hockey fan. I, I So you're did, open to it, it we, sounds like. Uh, yes. And when I went to school, I've told this story before, when I went to school in upstate New York, I went to school with a lot of New Yorkers and Bostonians, and they were all, all my buddies, my new buddies, yeah. were all hockey fans, including the guy who would become my roommate, who was a real big Boston Bruins fan. And he... And it was like his goal. I'm going to convert this Floridian. <laughs> right. He doesn't have any... When I, let me just explain this to you. When I When I was growing up... Not only was there no hockey in Florida, it wasn't even in the newspaper. The scores were not in the newspaper. They were not on the news. I Interesting. Mean, it, it's as if there was no such thing it as hockey. It didn't exist. So <laughs> I, I went from that to this guy in, 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 at Syracuse that wanted to convert me into a Boston Bruins fan. So he invited me home with him on, like, Thanksgiving long weekends and so forth. Yeah. And then he took me to the – I went to my first hockey game oh, okay. at the Boston Garden. I've never been. And I saw I – saw, and right then and there – I understood what everybody says about mm-hmm. hockey. 
which is if you're going to try to love hockey by watching it on TV, you're out. You're yeah. never. It'll never happen. You need to go to a game to understand. So I went to a couple of Boston Bruins games there, loved it, went back to Syracuse, and then Buffalo's not too far apart, and, and bu- the Buffalo Sabres played at a place called The Odd in Buffalo. We went and had wings, which, sure. by the way, weren't around, and they were brand new. <laughs> I go back to when wings were brand new. Went to Buffalo. I can remember a couple of drives. We went. We had wings before, which were new. Yeah. And then off to see the Buffalo Sabres. So I I developed up, but I still didn't understand the game. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't really the get rules, the rules. Icing, icing. and the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't so get the it. answer to your question is, I will definitely go. Okay. I will definitely go. I will definitely take the kids, take the family, and we'll see if we can develop up something in the, in the palette for, for the NHL when they, when they come to town. Did, it's going to be hard to get tickets, though. Right. That's, it looks like. But yeah. eventually, yeah. you know, when they go, yeah. you know, when they win four games in the first year, it'll slow down a little yeah. bit. No, that's not going to happen. What, was it the, the environment or was it, was it just being there? What, what was it about being there that made it easier to follow? I'm curious. Because I hear about car racing all the time that you can't appreciate it until you go to the Indy 500. I would because say of the two sounds. things. I would say that, first of all, it's really hard to follow the puck on a television watching hockey on yeah. TV. Go Remember back, Fox? Go, Remember what they tried to yeah, do? Yeah, that little streaky thing yeah. that didn't work. I was in. That, that was good for me. I'm the only one in the country who seemed to like it. I was like, okay, I can follow so you can't, it now. So, so here you are watching something on TV where you can't follow the puck very well, and they're not scoring very much. A little bit here, a little bit there. Yeah. So I think that those two things, that's a, that's you put those two things together, and that's tough. Then you go to a game, and a couple things happen. Number one, you can follow the puck. Number two, there's an intensity to it. Hmm. There's a physicality to the game. Not only a physicality to the game, there's 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 a there, – and you, you'd say, okay, can't you get that on TV? I, I don't think you get – I think, first of all, hockey fans, if you go to the right city, they're rough and tumble fans. These are not like tennis. These, are, these aren't the people that are going to Wimbledon. <laughs> right, okay? gotcha. So you get a, you get a, a, a passion, you get an intensity – you feel the hitting that's going on on the ice. And then against the boards and, and the, the rattle. Boards. Now you're following the puck. You got the okay. emotion right. of it. You're talking me into okay. it a bit. Okay, so there's so I think a lot of things happen when you get to their seat that you can't you can't possibly uh, I don't know you can't possibly digest watching it on TV. So that, that's that would be my is that a good enough answer? Yeah, it is. I, I made it all up. I, <laughs> That doesn't surprise me. I sometimes think I'm too old to add things to my life. I'm just like, eh, I don't know. If I'm not into it now, I'll never be into it. But uh, maybe I should try. Maybe I should try. It sounds like it'll be fun. You do fine. Do you want to pick 49? You want me to pick 49? I, think, I didn't even uh, discuss the guy getting knocked out of the ring. It looks like. Yeah, him. who got knocked out of the ring? Some guy. They just showed. There's, there was a fight. I know that the boxing. Well, it wasn't Pacquiao, but I know the Pacquiao fought over the weekend. There was just a, some heavyweight fight where one heavyweight knocked another guy literally out of the ring. He and not back for, backwards. He yeah. went. He went head first out of the ring, <laughs> like a slip. And, and slide. he reminded me of you. And not only uh, when I was watching the highlight from behind, did he have your shape or the shape that I remember you? I, I think you're a little lighter I'm than a I little used lighter. To. Yes, but he, he had your shape, this guy. Yeah. And then you told me the whole Joe Hip story. Almost died. And, if, and I'm telling you, <laughs> I'm watching this thing, and I'm just having I'm just having uh, uh, flashbacks to you against Joe Hip. You've probably already told this, but what didn't you have a love of boxing as a kid? Because I know I, I did. It. Right. So I'm kind of curious. Maybe we can discuss it another time. What what happened to our love of boxing? Because I don't follow it like I used to either. Well, Don King happened, and and Bob yeah. Arum happened, and then there were too many too many organizations and there was so much corruption and then there was Mike Tyson okay. and it just got people to be, quitting in the be, ring. Well, and... it became a circus. It became more WWE than it yeah. became boxing and it went away. We all, we all just lost our, I think that's what happened 
we lost our appetite. I was a huge. It might have been my favorite sport. Interesting. Growing up. The sweet science? Hey, you I loved, loved Cosell. boxing. Cosell. Yeah. I loved boxing. I remember the heydays of being a kid with like Sugar Ray and uh, it was like, I, I ran Barkley and, and, and uh, <laughs> Hagler. And, do you remember Barkley? I ran Barkley. There was like four or five. people for you to mention. But he was yeah, good. Bar- yeah, but I mean. You, Who Sugar was the Ray other one? Leonard, the, the ball- Roberto Duran, Tommy Hearns. Hearns, yeah. You could throw, I ran Barkley. Oh, well, I, I told you, I used to love it. I watched, I, I remember I ran Barkley <laughs> listening to this podcast, he'd be like, oh my God, the guy threw me into it's the It's been mix. 30 years since someone said my name. I'm so happy. But there was I mean, a whole like, that whole class was just stacked. And I loved well, it. I loved them all fighting. Well, you're each talking other. about you're you're touching upon what brought me into sports casting, which well, I, we can hold for the yeah. I may want to hold yeah for the 1976. Interview. You're too young to remember 1976. That's the difference between your my age and your age. You don't remember 1976. Uh, I do remember my birthday cake when I was two. Yes. Okay, but you don't remember 1976. <laughs> no, I don't remember 70. The Olympic boxing team oh. of 1976. Interesting. Oh. Okay. All right. Sugar Ray Leonard, the Spinks brothers. Howard Davis Jr., guy from Tacoma was on that. It was one of the great, probably the greatest United States boxing team of all time. All guys that went on to win world championships. And Howard Cosell on the call. Great. I was nine years old, and from that moment on, I wanted to do two things. Imitate Howard Cosell and become a sportscaster. 1976 U.S. Olympics. And That's one it. day you may accomplish that. One day you may become a sportscaster. It hasn't ha- happened up until now. <laughs> It's never going to happen. <laughs> All right. Do you want to take us out? Do you want to pick? Well, you got to pick, pick the 49. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking I'm taking Ron. I'm taking the, the the Gator. Louisiana Lightning. That's the Ron name Gator. I know the most, so I'm happy to go along. We could go that. Clint Gresham if you want to go Clint Gresham. <laughs> I'll we pass. go Joe Table. Episode Joe Table <laughs> in the books. You uh, you want to take us out or you want me to take you? You take us out this time. Welcome back. You know, you had a long weekend hanging out yeah. with the guys, yeah. doing God knows what. So, yeah. you know, welcome Playing back. Playing golf. Playing golf. All right. Uh, episode uh, Louisiana Lightning. Episode Ron Guidry is in the books. Thank you.